The work we do in the Biological Threat Reduction Program is, is complicated, and it's difficult to communicate it sometimes to uh, outside audiences. And I think our adversaries like Russia can take advantage of that with some of the propaganda that they put out. The Biological Threat Reduction Program is working in 27 countries. We feel this disinformation and misinformation is done just to really exploit divisions. We've had accusations that some research projects were being used to create threats, not to identify threats and reduce them. Ulterior motives are being injected where none exist. We've built these capabilities for the partners, their central reference labs for research. They publish everything they do. They invite the international community into their laboratories. They're working on behalf and the benefit of the people of their respective countries. Kazakhstan, like many of the other republics in the former Soviet Union, had biological weapons. Russia media has attacked the central reference laboratory that was built by the Biological Threat Reduction Program. The laboratory is there to both store dangerous biological pathogens from the Soviet era and to conduct research by Kazakhstani scientists in order to prevent the spread of new biological pathogens. Work in Ukraine is essential to help safeguard Europe from some of the naturally occurring diseases that uh, could really undermine security across the region and ultimately to the United States. Russia and Ukraine have launched a volley of claims and counterclaims. It's becoming impossible really to verify any of it. The latest allegation is this, bioweapons. Russia claims it has uncovered 30 bio labs in Ukraine, 3-0, 30 bio labs in Ukraine. What happened to these labs? What happened at these labs, rather? According to Russia, weaponization, they were making biological weapons. They claim America was developing bio weapons in Ukraine. His back is against the wall, and uh, he's, now he's talking about new false flags he's setting up, including He's asserting that we, America, have biological as well as chemical weapons in Europe. Simply not true. I guarantee you. They're also suggesting that Ukraine has biological and chemical weapons in Ukraine. That's a clear sign he's considering using both of those. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. We have a very special guest on today's podcast, Gumby for Christ, who has been on Media Roots Radio several times before. I looked around for guests for today's podcast to discuss the issue of Ukrainian biological labs run by the U.S. Defense Department and the firestorm that these accusations have recently caused. If you'd like to skip ahead straight to the discussion with Gumby for Christ, scroll forward to the 22-minute mark of the podcast. Along with the release of this podcast, I have compiled about 100 documents, all taken from public sources. None of them are leaked documents except for the ones supplied by the Russian government. I've combined them in a massive cache of documents that are searchable and our Hidden History was kind enough to actually host the archive of these documents. They're searchable on their website. 
and you can access them at ourhiddenhistory.org. We'll also be hosting a mirror of the same documents on a Google Drive link. Among these Defense Threat Reduction Agency documents are documents for each individual former Soviet country that is part of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, which includes Azerbaijan, Albania, Armenia, Uzbekistan, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and several other countries. But after that very long intro, let's get into the rest of the story. On March 7th, 2022, the chief spokesman for the Ministry of Defense of Russia, Igor Konoshenkov, stated that there was now unequivocal proof of the original accusations that Russia made, and they were providing documents through the Ministry of Defense's website and social media presence showing what they believed to be documents of Ukrainian biological labs conducting research for the U.S. military that could potentially be used as biological weapons. It is obvious that in the wake of the special military operation, the Pentagon started having serious concerns about secret biological experiments uncovered on the Ukrainian territory. The uncovered documents confirm that components for chemical weapons were developed in Ukrainian biolabs in immediate proximity to Russia. This seemed like quite an accusation at the time, but the documents that Russia released appeared to be real. Or were they misrepresenting them? What did these documents actually show? On March 8th, Zhou Lijiang, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, took Russia's side on this issue and made quite a public statement about it. Lately, U.S. biological labs in Ukraine have indeed attracted much attention. According to reports, a large quantity of dangerous viruses are stored in these facilities. Russia has found during its military operations that the U.S. uses these facilities to conduct biomilitary plans. According to data released by the U.S., it has 26 labs and other related facilities in Ukraine, over which the U.S. Department of Defense has absolute control. All dangerous pathogens in Ukraine must be stored in these labs, and all research activities are led by the U.S. side. Without U.S. approval, no information shall be released to the public. Under current circumstances, for the sake of the health and safety of people in Ukraine, neighboring regions and beyond, we call on relevant sides to ensure the safety of these labs. The U.S. in particular, as the party that knows the labs the best, should disclose specific information as soon as possible, including which viruses are stored and what research has been conducted. I would also like to stress that the biological military activities of the U.S. and Ukraine are merely the tip of the iceberg. 
using such pretexts as cooperating to reduce biological safety risks and strengthening global public health. The U.S. has 336 biological labs and 30 countries under its control. 336. You heard me right. It also conducted many biological military activities in the Fort Detrick base at home. What is the true intention of the U.S.? What has it done specifically? The international community has long held doubts. However, the U.S. has kept stonewalling. Even dismissing the international community's doubts as spreading disinformation. Besides, the U.S. has been standing alone in obstructing the establishment of a biological weapons convention verification mechanism and refusing verification of its biological facilities at home and abroad for the past two decades. This has led to deeper concern of the international community. Once again, we urge the U.S. to give a full account of its biological military activities at home and abroad and subject itself to multilateral verification. Now, I have to admit, I was a little surprised that China had the balls to come out and join these accusations with Russia. But apparently this is something that China has actually been talking about since at least last year. Ten months ago, another Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman named Hua Chunying asked, what kind of activities has the U.S. carried out in the Fort Detrick Laboratory and other biolabs in Ukraine and Central Asia? And she was saying this after people in the U.S. government started creating quite a stir by implying that China had somehow manufactured COVID-19. So it makes sense in a way that China would come back at the U.S. with these kinds of accusations. But it's interesting that one of the only news networks, when you search on YouTube for information about this subject that comes up, is an English language channel from New Delhi, India, called Wyon. The world is one news. Now, Wyon, infamously, is very similar to news networks like Epic Times or even New Tang Dynasty Television when it comes to talking about China. When I say that, I mean they're virulently anti-China. So listen to this newscaster on Wyon as she goes on a rant mocking China for even bringing this up while basically blaming them for creating COVID-19. And China is latching onto it. This is China speaking. You have to appreciate the audacity. It's borderline hilarious. Just two years ago, China exported a deadly virus to the whole world. They hid the ground reality. They refused multilateral verifications. And today, that, that same China is preaching. For the record, we still don't know how the Wuhan virus emerged. Was it a lab leak? Now, if you're a listener of this podcast, you might be familiar with the documentary film series that I made called The Very Heavy Agenda that focuses mostly on the Kagan family. Robert Kagan, Kimberly Kagan, Donald Kagan, Fred Kagan, and Victoria Newland, the wife of Robert Kagan, an infamous family of neoconservatives. Well, Victoria Newland made news in this saga. The same day that the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson 
made that statement. Victoria Newland does a hearing that she regularly does, now as her role as Under Secretary for Political Affairs. And she was mostly being asked about the situation in Ukraine. And Marco Rubio got a chance to question her. He started by asking her a bunch of ridiculous questions about Juan Guaido being recognized as the president of Venezuela and sort of pressed her on that. But then he eventually asked her about these Russian accusations. Probably the first time a U.S. official was directly asked in a way where they just couldn't purely stonewall the question. Well, um, I only have a minute left. Let me ask you, um, does Ukraine have chemical or biological weapons? Uh, Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. The day after Victoria Newland said this, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, seemed like she went into damage control mode, as if Victoria Newland was not supposed to say this. Jen Psaki took to Twitter on March 9th at 1.48 p.m. And she wrote quite a long thread. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But here's what she said. We took note of Russia's false claims about alleged U.S. biological weapons labs and chemical weapons development in Ukraine. We've also seen Chinese officials echo these conspiracy theories. This is preposterous. It's the kind of disinformation operation we've seen repeatedly from the Russians over the years, in Ukraine and in other countries, which have been debunked. And an example of these types of false pretexts, we have been warning the Russians would invent. The U.S. is in full compliance with its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention and the Biological Weapons Convention and does not develop or possess such weapons anywhere. It's Russia that has a long and well-documented track record of using chemical weapons. It's Russia that continues to support the Assad regime, which has repeatedly used chemical weapons. Also, Russia has a track record of accusing the West of the very violations that Russia itself is perpetrating. Now that Russia has made these false claims and China has seemingly endorsed their propaganda, we should all be on the lookout for Russia to possibly use chemical or biological weapons in Ukraine or to create a false flag operation using them. It's a clear pattern. The day after Jen Psaki's Twitter tirade, where she again gaslighted about Russia conducting a false flag operation using biological weapons. On March 10th, Marco Rubio again is the one to introduce the subject of Ukrainian biological labs. In a hearing with Avril Haines, 
the director of the Office of National Intelligence. And she seemed even a little caught off guard by the questioning and tried to answer, again, doing damage control, but admitting some things along the way. No, let me be clear. We do not assess that Ukraine is pursuing either biological weapons or nuclear weapons, which have been some of the, uh, basically, the, the propaganda that Russia is putting out. Okay, so they do have the biological research facilities. What is our government's role in their biological research programs? So, as I understand it, Ukraine operates about a little over a dozen, essentially, bio labs, and what they are involved in is Ukraine's biodefense and their public health response, and that's essentially what they're intended to do. And I think that the U.S. government provides assistance, and, or at least has in the past, provide assistance. Now, the stonewalling on behalf of the U.S. government and the poor job of doing damage control, seemingly, on the subject caused people in the U.S. press corps to further question White House representatives, which resulted in these two statements that same day after Avril Haines tried to do damage control herself. First by John Kirby, the U.S. assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs, and Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, responded to these accusations again. And John Kirby basically talks over the reporter who's trying to ask a very specific question about the level of participation the U.S. actually has in these labs, trying to just verify that one thing, and he refuses to even listen to the reporter and just keeps talking over him. So first I'm going to play John Kirby's statement. The Russian accusations uh, are absurd. They're laughable. And, uh, you know, in the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. There's nothing to it. It's classic Rus Russian propaganda. And, uh, and uh, I wouldn't, uh, if I were you, I, I, wouldn't give it, uh, I wouldn't give it a drop of ink worth, worth paying attention to. Yeah, but, but uh, can you explain to us, what it, has there been any relationship between the... We are not, not developing biological or chemical weapons inside Ukraine. It's not happening. John Kirby is not doing a particularly good job and just had to talk over the guy as he was asking what level of participation the military has in these labs. Jen Psaki tries a different approach, more like her Twitter thread, and continues to gaslight about Russia again conducting a false flag and how they're the ones who are actually developing biological weapons. Take a listen. They have a large uh, biological and chemical weapons program. Uh, so it's a pattern, but they also have the capacity. Uh, well, I'm not going to get into specific intelligence. We look at all of those factors. Um, and we also know, and one of the reasons, one of the, the, the main issue that prompted my Twitter thread yesterday was that uh, Russia has a history also of inventing outright lies like this, which is the suggestion that the United States has a chemical and biological weapons program, or Ukraine does, that they're operating. Russia is the one, is the country that has a chemical and biological weapons program. So uh, the objective uh, was to uh, make clear uh, the inaccuracy of the information, the misinformation they're trying to put out, uh, and make clear to the world that they not only have the capacity, they have a history of using chemical and biological weapons, and that uh, in this moment we should have our eyes open for that possibility. Now notice what Jen Psaki is not saying. She's not saying that these documents Russia released are fake. 
She's not even bothering to say that Russia is misconstruing what's in these documents. In fact, they're just choosing not to address them at all. You would think that they would have some talking points ready to go to just deflect against the content of what Russia is saying, but instead, they're choosing a different approach. They're sidestepping it and essentially escalating things rhetorically with Russia back. But Russia didn't stop there, and they continued to leak more documents. This story was really only picked up by people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News, and that's pretty much the only mainstream attention it got. But Tucker Carlson really didn't shed any new light or give any more details to these programs whatsoever. He just had on Glenn Greenwald and Tulsi Gabbard and had Glenn Greenwald remark on how the media was calling this a conspiracy theory up until the point where Victoria Newland admitted something that maybe she wasn't supposed to. And nobody in the press corps seems interested in finding out what's at the bottom of this. Why is that? Right. So first of all, like you, I've heard the Russian and Chinese accusations for weeks that the United States is partnering with Ukraine to have biolabs right on the other side of the Russian border and never talked about it because there was never any evidence for it. I don't think right. the word of the Russians or the Chinese for exactly. it. What made me get interested in the story was when Victoria Nuland went before the Senate. But beyond that, there wasn't very much detail or content coming out of the mainstream media here in the United States. Only a few news networks like Al Jazeera, France 24, the BBC, covered this in Europe. The CBC also covered this, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. But there was very little coverage on U.S. mainstream TV media. There were debunking pieces coming out very frequently in U.S. print media, saying that these were all conspiracy theories, essentially saying a lot of the same things that Jen Psaki is saying. But on March 17th, the Russian government, via Maria Zakharova, the Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman, came out and had this to say. On March 11th, Russia's state Duma lodged an appeal to the UN and the OSCE Parliamentary Assembly with a call to investigate the activities of biological laboratories in Ukraine. According to the information we have had, a working group of relevant parliamentary experts is being set up. We hope that the Russia-phobia currently spreading on many international occasions will not impede us from seeing the real threat posed by these out-of-control laboratories. These labs, over the years, have not been run democratically by the citizens of the countries in which they live, but by the U.S. Department of Defense from the outside. They are a real threat and are very close to us. It is not only about biolaboratories in Ukraine. The picture is much bigger. These American biological laboratories are located in Central Asia, Georgia, and other countries. In this case, the situation is aggravated by the fact that 
For many years, the territory of Ukraine has not been controlled by a democratic regime, but by external forces including the United States and NATO. These laboratories worked in conjunction with the Pentagon. For our part, we do not exclude the possibility of using the mechanisms of Articles 5 and 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention, according to which the participating states must consult with each other in resolving any issues regarding the purpose of the convention or in connection with the implementations of its provisions. We'll cooperate in any investigation into possible violations of Biological Weapons Convention. We will also promptly inform the public about new facts of military biological activities carried out bypassing the Biological Weapons Convention on the basis of the aforementioned Ukrainian-American biological laboratories. There really wasn't anything hyperbolic in that official statement from the Russian spokeswoman. But I did mention that our very special guest today is Gumby, a.k.a. Gumby for Christ, an amazing researcher and someone who has better read on the subject of U.S. biodefense than just about anyone else that I know. So here's my discussion with Gumby. Let's start by talking about the Biological Weapons Convention. Most people probably have the impression that the Biological Weapons Convention, as it was entered in 1975, that the Biological Weapons Convention explicitly prohibits the manufacturing of biological weapons, and that only these so-called rogue nations partake in activities like making biological weapons post the convention. I think people generally believe that the biological arms race is over since this convention was put into place. And generally speaking, that the U.S. is most definitely very likely not making anything that could be considered a biological weapon anymore. As I've learned from you, Gumby, and and all the amazing research you've done, and just from reading about the Biological Weapons Convention and how it started, it doesn't seem like what I've just described is the actual reality of the situation. The Biological Weapons Convention itself, and this is all also coming from people who were involved in the creation of the convention itself, have said this, that it seems as if the Biological Weapons Convention on its face only actually prohibits intent not the actual manufacturing process itself for biological weapons. Now, as crazy as that sounds, can you break that down for us or even correct anything I'm saying if I've said anything blatantly wrong there? Uh, yeah, I think it does largely go back to intent. So, I mean, 1972 is when the Biological Weapons Convention passed. My understanding is that the U.S. Um, actually are the ones who pushed for it <laughs> because... Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of there was reporting in the late 60s, a lot of it done by Seymour Hirsch um, that kind of started to expose that the U.S. was still running a biological weapons program. There was and chemical weapons program as well. And they're kind of interrelated. And Nixon is the one who he like goes to Fort Detrick, you know, the heart of the chemical and biological weapons program in the U.S. And he gives a speech um, where he says, 
basically announces to the world that the U.S. is going to voluntarily give up its biological weapons. And that, you know, maybe seems magnanimous, but I think it's usually read that biological weapons were seen as, I think, um, I forget who uses this phrase, but I know that Francis Boyle has quoted it in his book, which I was looking at recently, Biowarfare and Terrorism, that biological weapons were, quote unquote, the poor man's atom bomb. <laughs> and so, you know, it doesn't take that much to kind of um, uh, make some anthrax spores or something like that, whereas it takes a huge infrastructure uh, to make nuclear weapons. So by banning biological weapons, you were creating, uh, you were strengthening the nuclear power. So if you already had a nuclear bomb, you know, it kind of preserved your power. Um, whereas if everybody was developing these bioweapons, you may find something that uh, is even, has even more of this deterrent effect. As far as what you were saying about intent, I think so, because the real loophole, and again, uh, this, this kind of coming from Francis Boyle, who wrote the implementing legislation for the Biological Weapons Convention, so the domestic U.S. legislation in the 80s. And what he talks about is the loophole is that the BWC Article 1 prohibits, uh, it doesn't prohibit research for prophylactic, protective, or other peaceful purposes. Basically, the way it does it is that you can't develop microbial or other biological agents or toxins unless you have a justification, which is prophylactic, protective, or other peaceful purpose. Well, so all you have to do is come up with some kind of somewhat plausible explanation for why you're developing something, and then there's no prohibition in the Biological Weapons uh, Convention to prevent you from doing that. And it's pretty easy to do because one, you can say, well, we think somebody else has anthrax, so we're gonna develop really dangerous forms of anthrax. Um, or you can develop even kind of, uh, you know, other ones and uh, at the same time develop a vaccine to it. So the reason you're developing it is not because you want to weaponize it, uh, but because you want to do a vaccine. In terms of weaponization, so there's like two, you can kind of break it down into two categories. It's like once you make a biological weapon, the carrier or the delivery method for it is a type of weaponizing it. Like putting you know yeah. anthrax mixing it with an electrostatically charged powder inert powder to carry you know to spread into the air but there's also this other aspect which is to make a vaccine for something you know like a more powerful version of a virus you have to enhance that virus or that pathogen and that's could arguably be a form of weaponization you are making that pathogen more deadly in order to make a new type of vaccine for it would you agree with that or yeah, I would agree. I mean, weaponization, I don't think has any specific term, you know, there's no specific definition for what that is in terms of increasing the uh, transmissibility or pathogenicity of a virus. There is a specific prohibition on weapons in the BWC that's separate from what I was just reading. Yeah. But what that's really referring to is more like the munition, you know, the bomb that you put it in. So, you know, if you start developing anthrax bombs, which incidentally the U.S. appears to have done in the late 90s with anthrax, a literal anthrax bomb that they were uh, working on a program for, that almost certainly violates the, the BWC. But making a, and you know, this is what, probably a lot of people are familiar with gain of function research. The whole point of that is to make a virus more transmissible or more 
uh, virulent or more deadly and then challenging it against a vaccine, what they call vaccine challenge work, that, you know, you would have a pretty strong case doesn't violate the BWC because you're not trying to supposedly, you know, your intent is not to make it um, deadly, it's to make it more testable against the vaccine because things might get more dangerous in nature or whatever, you know, yada, yada, yada. So yeah, I think ultimately a lot of it does come down to intent as far as how the, the Biological Weapons Convention is written. What do you make of Israel being probably the most prominent nation on this list? Because I was looking at the list of nations that have not signed on to the Biological Weapons Convention. And they they stood out to me. I mean, Egypt is probably the other biggest country on that list. But what do you make of Israel being one of the nations not to agree to the terms of the BCW? I mean, if the U.S. is basically using this as a loophole, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, why would Israel not take the same approach? Why would they be brazenly not signing on to this? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know what, you know, I don't know if there's a specific history there with Israel and why they didn't sign on, but they are pretty widely acknowledged that they have, or at least had some kind of offensive biological weapons program. Um, I mean, this is like, you know, if you go to Wikipedia, it will tell you that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, but it's, totally secret. So who knows what they are developing? I don't think it really is known. Uh, Israel also, of course, has a nuclear program, which is sort of theoretically secret, even though everybody in the world knows it exists and has for like, you know, uh, 50 years or something. But yeah, why they why they wouldn't even go through the pretense of signing on, I don't know. Part of the reason I don't know is because the BWC has no teeth, um, yeah. as it was written in 1972, and it still does not have any kind of verification mechanism. There is no protocol, uh, no international agreement for going in and inspecting bio labs and seeing if they're making weapons. There's no protocol for if there is an alleged attack. You know, Russia is now making some allegations that the U.S. had, or Ukraine, or some combination of the two, NATO have used biological weapons in Donetsk. They've made this assertion that tuberculosis came out of a lab. It beats the vaccine uh, version of of tuberculosis. And anyway, you can make an allegation, but there's nobody who can come in and actually investigate. So the Russia has recently been calling these kind of like meetings in the UN of the member states of the Biological Weapons Convention. And they get around and they kind of say things to each other but at the end of the day, there's nothing, nothing comes out of it because there is no teeth to it. And the reason there's no teeth to it is because um, for years they were working on it in the uh, mid to late 90s. And uh, for about six years, they were developing this agreement to actually put some teeth into it and create something on the like the OPCW, but for biological weapons. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute in August of 2001, the Bush administration just scuttled it and said, Oh, well, actually, you can't even tell the difference between (laughs) you can't tell the difference between a bioweapon and a legitimate program. And we have concerns about that. So we're not going to sign on. We're not going to ratify. And this whole thing needs to be rethought and readjusted. And they continued to 
refused to allow any agreement on that. The Obama administration came in and immediately said, did the exact same thing. So that pretty much put a nail in the coffin of any idea that you're going to get a legitimate, real kind of investigatory mechanism in place uh, that could actually figure out or have any involvement in looking at these bio labs, any kind of oversight, any kind of investigation ability, you know, whatever. It, there is none of that in the BWC. And just as an aside, I mean, I, I would assume within a, a, a very specific time frame, similar time frame to that happening, we had just gotten the UN to send in weapons inspectors into Iraq and right. didn't let them yep. finish their even finish their inspections. We just decided to go in anyway. So it's just yeah. it just makes it extra hypocritical and fucked up um, that we're you know f basically saying no, nah, this is too restrictive. Like we, I mean, because at the same time this is all happening, Project BioShield was also getting off the ground. I mean, at least during the launch of the Iraq War, which is you know goes into the next thing I wanted to ask you about this idea of bio defense. You know, the, the name Project BioShield, it's like sort of like almost like the Iron Dome, you know, against bioterrorism. Ever, <laughs> ever since the Biological Weapons Convention was put into place, an entire sector of the U.S. Department of Defense is dedicated to what is commonly referred to as biodefense. Anyone listening to this podcast or anyone who's heard you talk about this or follows you on Twitter would be familiar already with sort of this dual use Cold War era paradigm of conflating defensive military projects with defensive ones. The line is, of course, very blurry. And that's even been stated by people who were privy, you know, who were government officials during the Biological Weapons Convention, that the line between offense and defense when it comes to biological materials is very blurry. So how would you explain biodefense to a lay person who just isn't familiar with or who hasn't been fully blackpilled yet on the, you know, the rhetorical tricks of the U.S. empire. Um, what would you, how would you explain that to someone? Because I've even seen leftists and anti-imperialists, frankly, who should know better, defending even the concept of biodefense. Um, and that's shocking to me. And I guess I, I just, you know, after seeing that, I feel like people maybe need a primer on it, even though to me it seems so obvious. How, how would you explain that to someone? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really just a rhetorical trick. You know, we have a Department of Defense <laughs> that used to be called the War Department, mm -hmm. right? And the War Department is the more legitimate name. I mean, Orwell, for all the, you know, problems like, you know, uh, socialist leftists like me would have with Orwell, um, he is right about the way that language is just used, you know, you politically to say the opposite of what the actual intent of it is, you know? So they call it, biodefense and it's really bioweapons or at least I don't want to say that the whole because Project BioShield is billions and billions of dollars. It is a massive inflation of the entire kind of bioscience, bio defense, you know, whatever you want to call this realm of research. It just balloons it to an absurd degree that, you know, it, it doesn't even compare with what had gone before. And some of that is legitimate stuff. It's not like they're never doing stuff that is legitimate research and really is, you know, researching the risk of a disease that, you know, could jump from animals. Um, that, that's been the 
the usual kind of cover for a lot of stuff in the post Project BioShield era. Um, but a lot of it is also not. If you just read into the way that they frame things, the Department of Defense, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, which is one of the key players in the Department of Defense with, with biodefense, um, they're always talking about how they're kind of heading off the threat of bioterrorism or the threat of biological weapons. Well, that right there puts it outside of the frame of we're worried about mother nature and things might jump from animals to humans. You know, I think anybody can say that's a legitimate concern. Well, they mix it all together is that's exactly. part of what you're saying. Yep. It's like, so they yeah. act as if they're equally threatening or, or they're equally as important, but the, the th chances of bioterrorism is so infinitesimally small. I mean, it's barely happened in history that it's, you know, it's disingenuous on its face, but sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that was a good point because yeah, that is, that is what I'm trying to get at is that they just mix everything together. And actually Fauci, I believe has a quote uh, from years ago where he says something like, uh, Mother Nature is the greatest bioterrorist of them all, or something like that. And oh that kind of that is the heart of biodefense. Really, is completely muddying the waters between um, bioweapons, bioterrorism, and naturally occurring viruses. And so, a lot of the viruses they study, it's not like they're creating some out of whole cloth, completely new um, pathogen that's never existed in nature before. Usually what they're doing and the, the projects that get funded through the NIH and through DTRA are things where they're taking something that exists in nature and making it much more transmissible or much more deadly or, um, you know, they're increasing its function, its gain of function research. So, you know, as far as people falling into the trap, I mean, I would just say, what do you think the U.S. Department of Defense exists for? What does the Pentagon exist for? It does not exist to defend the United States, really. I mean, in some in some scope, I guess people would think of it that way. It defends the empire of the United States, and it exists to expand the empire of the United States. And it exists to not to reduce threats, as the ridiculous, again, Orwellian term is, but to increase the threat and to... And I think other countries do know this because they have some inkling of what the U.S. is doing. They've seen that there is this massive escalation in funding. And I think other countries, you know, it may be used cynically, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more with Russia, um, but there is a legitimate concern. I, I think it's very difficult to make the case that everything the U.S. Pentagon is funding in all of these countries around the world, including kind of ringing Russia with these biolabs, that all of that is just purely out of the goodness of their hearts and they're just interested in um, scientific research and in um, you know re uh, getting rid of the old stockpiles of bioweapons from the Soviet era or whatever they you know would claim. It's just, it, it just falls on its face, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, I completely agree and I think you broke that down beautifully. It is very frustrating to see people taking such a reactionary approach to this subject. It should be so obvious. And I'm wondering if you feel similarly about this, that I think that the COVID lab leak theory becoming so dominant on the right sort of primed certain people on the left who were 
either avoidant of engaging with that subject or they tried to debunk it as best they possibly could. You know, some of these people were doing it from the mindset of trying to defend China, which I can sympathize with. I think this is what's playing into it. It's because DTRA and the biodefense sector as we know it in the U.S. government involves agencies like the CDC and the NIH. Specifically, just the biodefense sector is sort of a collaborative process between the Department of Defense, NIH, and CDC in a lot of different ways. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the smallpox vaccination rollout is a great example of how all those agencies were working in concert and how they had these public health officials playing sort of the role of the good cop kind of, and then like the neocons playing the role of like the bad cop, you know, the more militarized, we need to stop a smallpox bioterror attack. So I think that that's something that may be tripping people up is they don't, and, and because they don't want to think that, you know, this research by EcoHealth Alliance in, in Wuhan could be potentially nefarious and they've already sort of doubled down on that position. By extension, it's sort of like, well, the CDC and NIH if they're doing biodefense stuff, it's probably above board. It's It doesn't seem overtly military. But like you've said, there's been such a muddying of the waters, even in terms of just what these agencies do collaboratively, that you do kind of have to ask a question if they are military-related projects. Just for me personally, because the NIH, for example, funded some of that research in Wuhan, that was not enough of a red flag for me on its own to be like, well, this is smells military to me now, and I and I need to like research this further. It honestly was not until I saw that the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, this Department of Defense agency, funded EcoHealth Alliance, gave them actually the biggest grant, almost of any uh, private company that they've ever given. And when I saw that, I'm like, well, then yeah, this does seem like there was a lot of military at least bureaucratic involvement in that. And it makes me question things more deeply now. So, and I personally will admit, I was resistant to that theory. I still am, you know, on the fence about it. But when I see something like that randomly, I'm like, well, this is really alarming. And I think more people should know that a military agency is this plugged into EcoHealth Alliance. And I don't know if you have a comment on that. I would just sort of um, not really, except that, yeah, that's kind of my framework for understanding this, too, is that, um, I, I mean, I think we've seen the ways that NIH, CDC, FDA, all these uh, regulatory bodies are completely compromised by the system, but I would agree that on its own, it wouldn't have raised the red flag, but um, like you said, EcoHealth Alliance is overwhelmingly funded by the Department of Defense, USAID as well has a heavy hand in there. And USAID, I would say, is an organization that is in, inherently more suspicious to me than uh, pure NIH funding, I guess. Of course. I, as far as the lab leak theory goes, I mean, I agree. I, I do think that got coded as right wing to believe that COVID came out of a lab in some way. And that's because the the framework <clears throat> or the um, narrative, you had basically two narrative paths. One, it's completely zoonotic, or two, it came out of a lab in Wuhan, uh, and it was, you know, you, you can, that from there there's a slight fork where the virulently anti-China people might say, might open up the possibility that China did it intentionally somehow. 
And then most of them would be that it was just this lab leak, it was an accident, and it exposes the corruption of the U.S. government because they were working with China. And so it all is an anti-China frame around it. I mean, I think there are other, many other possibilities with uh, the origins of COVID. And I think many of them do include labs and do include uh, U.S. funding. There are possibilities for intentionality and for accidents uh, within that framework as well. The lab leak theory, yeah, you basically had the, it's from nature or it's from China, so it gets coded right wing. Now we're seeing this happen with this Ukrainian biolab story, which is more perplexing because there's nothing about this that puts a kind of, I, I mean, it's totally consistent with an anti-imperialist point of view, even a kind of vulgar anti-imperialist line that like the U.S. is doing terrible things, you know. Um, but it, you know, it's gotten boosted mostly from a right-wing perspective, at least in terms of how the mass media is, is absorbing it. And yeah, the lab leak thing, I think it got, you're right, it got coded right-wing very early on. That was part of why I was uh, very resistant to it. And I think what's also coded right-wing still about it, and maybe you don't agree with this, but I think that the amount of focus just on Fauci and just on the bureaucratic or the ones that seem bureaucratic that aren't military agencies like the NIH and CDC seems like that's been, you know, that has a right wing coding to it too, because it's limiting the scope of this discussion again, just to those faces, you know, those faces that seem more liberal or more like they're part of a bureaucracy rather than the military or the defense threat reduction agency itself, which I'm looking at the grant right now. They gave EcoHealth Alliance actually three different grants, um, six million four hundred thousand dollars on 2017 for understanding the risk of bat-borne zoonotic diseases, um, and they gave them two more grants. Um, well, actually, several more grants. If you look down here, I mean, they're all over you know four million dollars, but they gave them the most recently recent grants another five million for Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever studies and then another almost five million for reducing the threat of rift valley fever and it just the list goes on and on so i'm even surprised by the right-wing media not talking more about this or even closing the circle between D the defense threat reduction agency eco health alliance who has become sort of you know targeted among the right media and this new story uh, because it also is under the umbrella of the defense threat reduction agency so I'm a little surprised those threads aren't being more connected. And, you know, maybe that's part of what I want to try to do today. I, I think zooming out from this and explaining it with more context will help people not have as many like reactionary takes to it. Right. Because you're right. I mean, I think Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Tulsi Gabbard taking the lead on this news story uh, about, you know, the accusations Russia's making against the U.S., on these Ukrainian biolabs is really making it really easy for people to just make it all about the messengers, including Russia, uh, rather than the actual content. It's one thing I wanted to say quickly about EcoHealth Alliance is that, um, you know, the primary focus has been on their work in Wuhan for obvious reasons, but they do, um, I mean, they fund, for one, they their major uh, funder is the Department of Defense, Sam Husseini, like ran the numbers on that and put together 
and uh, showed that that is their their largest single largest source of funding. And then number two is like USAID or NIH or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've also funded bat-borne virus research at the Luger Center in Georgia, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the primary bio labs of concern uh, for for uh, for Russia. So I mean, you know, that takes China is not involved in that lab, right? Uh, so you can see that it's EcoHealth, it's the Department of Defense. I mean, that Luger Center lab is effectively a Pentagon lab. I mean, it probably ha- it is technically run by Georgia now, but um, scientists there operate under U.S. diplomatic cover. I mean, they've uh, just put uh, old Soviet bioweapons people on the payroll. It's, it was built completely with um, Pentagon funds, you know, through the contractors and everything. The point is, and EcoHealth is is working there too on the same thing of coronavirus bat research. So what you're seeing there is that the Department of Defense clearly was interested in bat coronaviruses. This is all prior to you know the um, the outbreak of the pandemic, and that doesn't have to do with China. So you can pull it outside of a China frame when you you give this kind of broader uh, perspective to the oper- the you know the functions and operations they're doing. Oh, that's exactly right. And I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because, I, I mean, one of the things I've learned recently is that this idea that China dictated how the WHO responded to the pandemic and that basically China runs the WHO is something that I believe was also manipulated early on in this debate on purpose um, to sort of steer the debate in back into that anti-China frame when in reality, the U.S. has been using the WHO as an Im- instrument of imperialism pretty much since its very origin. So that's what's so interesting to me is how it's like you almost have to re-educate or deprogram people who have gotten sucked into that narrative. And to really explain it in the real story, it's like someone got in early, steered it that way, and now it makes like the work of actually just telling the real history of the WHO more difficult. And it's frustrating because liberals and people on the left will tend to actually defend, I think, or not want to look at those organizations as an instrument of imperialism, specifically the WHO, because of a lot of this sort of reactionary mentality in the right. I want you to give some context about these new accusations, because if you, as you found, they're actually not that new, and they go back as far as, I think you said, at least 2013 from the Russian side against the United States. But it does seem like the ball really got rolling on this with the the Nunn-Luger Act and the Luger Center in Georgia um, itself is named after Senator Luger. What was this act? Give us a little bit of backstory on the senators who it's named after. And what was this sort of proto-Defense Threat Reduction Agency program that came out of it? I mean, the Nunn-Luger Act was passed in the early 90s. And it set up, um, as I understand it, the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. And that was meant to be, basically the idea was the Soviet Union's fallen, uh, the Warsaw Pact is broken up. So you have all of these independent countries now, there's a whole crisis going on in that region of the world. And at the same time, there's all of these nuclear weapons sitting around and ICBMs that were designed to be used with nuclear weapons. And so this program was for the U.S. to go over there 
you know, very generously and um, clean up all of the old uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, get you know, collect them up, I guess, and destroy them, or at least secure them in some way. I'm not sure, you know, the extent. Every single thing they did as a result of that. Um, that did happen. I mean, they they did go over to various countries, um, and then they kind of expanded the program in the late 90s, I believe, uh, to include biological weapons and chemical weapons. So as far as biological weapons go, they um, do go and they supposedly, there's some island that the Soviets had had a bunch of anthrax on and they the, the US went over there and destroyed all the anthrax or whatever. Um, in 2005, and the way this worked is that the US would have to make agreements with each individual country. They'd make the agreement. There was a lot of money attached. So, you know, cash strapped post Soviet countries were in a pretty weak position and, you know, would want to agree to this sort of thing, generally speaking, because it would create an influx of, of, um, of money into their country. Um, in 2005, uh, Richard Luger, so the original bill was passed by Sam Nunn and Richard Luger. Um, Sam Nunn, you might know more about. Richard Luger, a longtime Republican congressman. I mean, he's been around since it was like the 70s. He just died a few years ago. He was in the Senate for a bazillion years from Indiana and um, ran for president at one point. And for whatever reason, he kind of took Barack Obama under his wing. Um, you know, he's a Republican, took Democratic, young, fresh-faced uh, Senator Obama. And um, they go on a trip. It's on a Congress congressional recess in 2005. And they travel over to, I think, Russia, Ukraine. They may have gone somewhere else, too. And in Ukraine, um, Obama actually tells this story in a speech he gave. Um, they go into some decrepit old facility they're being shown around by some you know kind of tour guide who's giving them the the uh, post-soviet weapons tour of ukraine or whatever and they, they there's literally like a mini refrigerator with like a child's bike lock securing it you know so no security at all and he opens it up and there's vials and vials of anthrax and plague inside and um you know so it's all this kind of cute story you know the way obama tells it it's always kind of a little joke at the end and the joke is that um you know obama's right up front watching this and he's like hey where's luger and you know luger's in the back the far back of the room he's like ah, i'm good i've seen this before um you know so ha 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 right uh <laughs> bioweapons uh but anyway the point of it is that while the two of them are over there in kiev they uh get the agreement signed so there is a an agreement that gets put in place um between uh the department of defense so it's actually signed by the Secretary of Defense and by uh, an official from Ukraine. And this is to um, consolidate. I mean, you know, the you have to read through the, the lines of the agreement to really. And even then, you can't really know exactly what they're doing. But the point is, they create this agreement to um, clean up or reduce the threat, I guess uh, is what they would say, of the um, Ukrainian biological weapons program. And so the first um, facility that they work on is a, 
a place called, and I wish I had the name pulled up here because it's kind of a, it's got a long name, but it's basically uh, in Odessa and it's... The Anti-Plague Institute? Or, yes, yeah, okay. exactly. Um, it's called like II something Anti-Plague Institute. And just so people know, this was previously, this is not something that the United States built. They didn't start, I don't even think they started building something over there in 2005. This was already a previous existing institution that was already called the Anti-Plague Institute, from what I understand. And there were, and some of these other labs and other old former Soviet territory had similar names and supposedly served a similar purpose that they were tracking and monitoring they were like plague stations um you know yeah. for different plague outbreaks in russia and just i was just pulling up a paper um that i found called the from the nun luger report i don't know how often they release this it's from august 2005 <laughs> and it also talks about how on this trip over there they also managed to cooperate and get an agreement from the government of, of azerbaijan i'm probably pronouncing that terribly but they they said they transported 124 samples of 62 unique strains of causative agents, plague, anthrax, cholera, and other dangerous diseases from Azerbaijan to Washington, D.C. But at the time, they already started, it says such cooperation is ongoing with Georgia, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. This bill, I think the bill you're talking about was specifically about Ukraine, but they were already you know, starting talks or having cooperative agreements already with some of these other Soviet Union countries as well. Yes. Um, so yeah, Ukraine was not, I think, the first one, but it um, it was one of the bigger um, programs, from what I understand. What happens with that anti-plague institute in Odessa is that, like you said, it was already built, it was already a facility, but what the U.S. did is they pour a bunch of money in, uh, they hire a contractor named Black and Veatch, and Black and Veatch um, has, it's been around for like a hundred years. It's based in Kansas City. And it, um, I, I'm not sure what they did prior to the forties, but their big entry into the kind of government world of contracts and stuff is that they get the contract for Los Alamos. And so they uh, were responsible for, I believe, building and outfitting a lot of these facilities that were related to the Manhattan Project. And really, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency starts with some other agencies, and there's a whole lineage. You can look it up on DTRA's website. They explain it. But basically, they trace the origins of DTRA to the same place, back to Los Alamos and the nuclear weapons program. Again, CTR, the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, it starts with nuclear weapons that expands out. So I'm just trying to create a context here where it's all about weapons. You know, it's not... This doesn't come out of... Uh, the NIH or the CDC or something. It's not an agreement with the CDC. Ukraine's agreement is literally signed with the Secretary of Defense of the United States. That's who the agreement is with. And the money that comes in is all coming from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, an arm of the Pentagon, you know, uh, a part of the Department of Defense. And so Black and Beach gets the contract to um, update this Odessa lab to a BSL-3 which is the second highest level BSL-4s. In 2005, I think there were only like a handful of BSL-4s in the world. There are more now. And there were more BSL-3s, but um, there became more and more as a result of Project BioShield, where like every university has a 
a BSL-3 practically these days. But this was the first BSL-3 designated laboratory in that entire part of the world. Um, so it was kind of a big deal that, and it, it also was designed to serve as the kind of interim central reference laboratory, which as I understand it is a place where they bring all of lots of pathogen types, you know, all the, you know, you have a sample of anthrax, sample of plague, sample of uh, cholera, sample of brucellus, you know, all these different things. And you have these uh, reference samples that you can use um, either to create more for some kind of research or, you know, um, you can use your imagination for what the dangerous versions of, of that research would be. And one thing I want to say about, about that is that Black and Veatch talks about this on their website. They have a whole page uh, from when this uh, BSL-3 was completed. Mm -hmm. And this is a quote from their website. The BSL-3 laboratory was specifically designed and constructed to support work with especially dangerous pathogens that can be naturally occur occurring or introduced through a bioterrorism attack. In other words, it's not a zoonotic research facility. That's not the point. I mean, that could be one element of what they would work on, but inherently it's talking about bioterrorism as being the the kind of auspices under which it's working. Um, so again, just trying to create this context that it's not about what you imagine that the CDC is supposed to be doing. You know, like there's an outbreak and you go and fight it. it there's a, a very clear defense level war mind state around everything that's um that's happening with these laboratories yeah and you could go find on record and it's probably been more money i would imagine but they've gotten 86 million dollars from the department of defense for the most part some of that money came from the epa i think for the, basically these defense threat reduction agency projects construction you know, all all types of different things are involved in, but specifically, as you've just said, they specialize in defending against bioterrorism. So they play a lot of different roles in this. And just if so people understand, here's a, a short list, because this is not even the full list of the different countries that currently are part of this cooperative threat reduction program under the DTRA, uh, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Albania, Armenia, um, Azerbaijan, um, Uzbekistan, and of course, Ukraine. And all this current debate is mostly focused in on Ukraine, uh, because that's what Russia has sort of put out into the atmosphere now. But just going back a little bit to this, the acquisition of some of these labs and the construction of some of them, and even just the cooperation with some of them to begin with, I mean, it seems almost like this is sort of like a hidden or not very talked about kind of mini operation paperclip type situation. If we're if we're taking what the U.S. has said at face value with how dangerous and crazy the Soviet biological weapons program was, because essentially, you know, the, you look at the backstory of this and it says that we basically hired, you know, we wanted to make sure we hired some of these ex-Soviet scientists who worked in, in these programs I mean, do you look at it that way or, or do you think it's different? Um, do you think that's like a, a complete mischaracterization of it to even compare it to Operation Paperclip? I mean, what do you think of that? <laughs> no, I mean, I think that uh, that 
uh, hadn't precisely occurred to me that way, but I think it does make a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's a lot of dispute that the Soviets ran a biological weapons program, that they sure. were sure. testing and designing, and, you know, uh, the U.S. was too. Um, absolutely. Uh, so the um, stated kind of explanation for why they do this is that, well, you know, there's this fear that like international terrorists or rogue gangs or something are going to hire up uh, some ex-Soviet bioweapons researcher and get him to make, you know, anthrax for them or whatever. You know, like Amshinrikyo could have hired uh, somebody from Russia or something. You know, that that's like the fear that was planted in their minds. And I, I think if you go back and watch a lot of movies from the 90s, this is like the plot line of every action movie mm -hmm. from the 90s is some kind of rogue agent, you know, working with ex biological weapons people. Tom you know, Clancy. It, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's probably a dozen different Steve Pachenik, uh, <laughs> Tom Clancy novels that are, uh, this is the, the gist of them. So th that's the stated purpose of it, you know, so it's unlike paperclip where that was kept pretty much secret or they tried to, I mean, mm -hmm. um, uh, to the most extent, but another way of looking at it is just the U S government, the Department of Defense is putting biological weapons researchers on their payroll. Now, why do you think they're doing that? Are they doing that because it's just make work? I mean, this is a, an expl explanation I've seen people say online. Oh, it's just make work. It doesn't actually mean anything. They're just trying to, um, uh, you know, basically pay them so that they don't do any rogue behavior or whatever. It, it, and they don't actually they're not getting paid to do much of anything really is, is sort of the explanation or do you think it's more likely that many of them are getting paid to do exactly what they used to do for the soviet union and now do it for the united states i mean i would say that's pretty plausible uh that that is what they're doing there was a a pbs miniseries docu docu miniseries made about made off of judith miller's book germs and in that one they don't say that these ex-Soviet scientists that are hired by the U.S. are making biological weapons, but they're pretty open about the fact that they're doing like very high-level, sophisticated shit that is very like could be dangerous if they wanted it to be. I mean, like they show they go into like one of these scientist labs who's now working in the U.S. and he's describing doing extremely advanced things and you know basically telling them you know if I want to do this I could make this into a biological weapon by doing this and he's like in the lab showing them. So, you know, over time, I'm sure, just like a lot of things, the U.S. government wants to downplay this more and more. But it is interesting that it wasn't, like you said, kept fully secret. Um, this was sort of spun as something that was good. You know, it wasn't um, it wasn't a bad thing that they were taking on these ex-Soviet biological weapon scientists. But this new revisionist version where it's like, oh, they're just like basically buying them off so they don't mm -hmm. go do bad things that wasn't originally what the U S government was saying about it themselves. So it's just interesting how people go into these weird head spaces to try to just not see the full scope of this. I mean, you don't really have to look very hard to see that that's not true, I guess. Is what yeah. I'm saying. And another thing I want to mention, and this is going back to the 2005 agreement with Ukraine. And I think it's a similar agreement that was made with other countries, but you'd have to look is that, one thing that they were directing them to do was to um, 
create an inventory of the pathogens they have in their labs and send them to the United States mm -hmm. so that the United States would have examples of everything. So you're talking about an old bioweapons program and now you're talking about, you know, sending all of them to the United States. Um, so, you know, it, it, it seems pretty, and I mean, you can see how you could create an explanation for that where, yeah, they want to know what's out there um, in the ether or something. Uh, but you can also create an explanation where it's like, well, we want to see what kind of really crazy shit they developed in the Soviet program and see if we can use any of that. I mean, that's what the U.S. did. You talk about paperclip, but there was a Japanese version of yeah, paperclip, yeah, yeah. too, with, uh, especially revolving around Unit 731, which is the horrifically just absolutely horrifying program that the Japanese were doing where they would... Um, you know, do live vivisections on people, just inject people with pathogens and cut them open and, um, you know, just terrifying experiments. The U.S. after the war, just um, they made a deal with Japan where they wouldn't uh, pursue uh, war crimes prosecutions against any of these people. And in exchange, they would get all of the fucked up information that they had found out and all of the photos and all of the, um, the research that they had done. Uh, a lot of those um, guys in that uh, biological weapons program ended up becoming Japan's like ministers of health and in their mm -hmm. national institutes of health. And there's been allegations that Shiro Ishii, who is the, um, I forget, lieutenant or whatever, who is in charge of it, uh, that he came over to the United States and advised them on the biological weapons program in the U.S. But I think that's unproven, but, you know, it seems pretty plausible that that happened. At any rate, I'm just saying, you know, we have a, a historical precedent for what they did after World War II. And do you think after the end of the Cold War, they did that again or they did something different? We don't really I, I wouldn't say that we have any way of knowing absolutely which one they did. Uh, but it seems like a pretty good case that, yeah, they are basically continuing to pursue biological weapons and ones that are more insidious or more deniable than they were before. Because um, I think that's one of the major functions of biological weapons research is that it is very difficult to trace. Um, if you create something that's really virulent and pathogenic and transmissible, and it looks pretty close to something that already exists in nature, then how can they ever trace it back to you? They can't really, I mean, if you destroy your own stockpiles and you keep no records, I mean, it would be, ex and there's no biological weapons convention inspectors anyway. Yeah. Um, it, it seems extremely difficult to ever trace this stuff back. And as we've seen with COVID, I mean, they still, there's no really solid, even official story for how that began. And that's true really of a lot of the uh, pandemics we've had over the past, like, you know, several decades. So, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting. It comes back to this idea of intent because it's like, on one hand, it's like we're supposed to trust the US government that they want samples of all these old Soviet bioweapons um, just to study and keep the world safe from them. But it's like that requires us putting our faith in that intent, the good intent. I mean, that's what's so bizarre about this. And I was even reading that there is another loophole in the BWC, which pretty much leaves open-ended the idea of weaponizing or using viruses as a biological weapon because the idea of 
the biological weapons convention explicitly states like living organisms, I, I believe. So there is sort of a debate of whether viruses are alive or not. And that it could also become a, or be another loophole. And I would imagine viruses are even harder to trace because once they're contagious, how, I mean, yeah, I guess there's a lot of ways to maybe find the epicenter of where they started, but it just seems like there is a, at a certain point where it's almost like attribution becomes impossible. And as you're saying, there is nothing stopping people from just destroying all their records. There are no inspectors. But let's fast forward to what's happening right now, because I know you've constructed a very thorough, detailed timeline of sort of how far this goes back. But there's a couple of different ways to parse this out. So I think it's really important to actually decouple because people are just, you know, so reactionary towards Russia right now because of what's happening in Ukraine that we need to decouple what Russia's saying about this or what their concerns are from just the actual subject matter, the labs themselves. What is what is happening in these labs in Ukraine? But I think it's also important to just honestly assess even if you hate Russia for some reason, honestly assess does Russia legit did they have legitimate reason to be concerned about these? And I think if you decouple that from what they're saying about them, you just completely omit that. Yes, they do. Just on its face, Russia does have reason to be legitimately concerned about these labs' existence. And I think that that's pretty, would be pretty hard to deny if you have somewhat of an understanding of geopolitics, history of the Cold War, the arms race. But initially, Gumby, I was sort of looking at what Russia said about this, and I kind of thought, they're doing. I, I'm willing to believe it. I, what I looked into about these labs seemed, uh, but I gave their presentation maybe like a C at the time. At first, I thought they maybe deserved like a C, but after all I've read and seen, I'm gonna say that what even what Putin is saying himself, even though he's maybe limiting or or spinning what he's saying a little bit about these labs, I would give it pretty much a B plus in in terms of accuracy. What they're saying is actually pretty on target. I guess before we break down the timeline, what were your initial impressions of when this first started being discussed by the Russian government? And what was your reaction to the validity of their claims at first? And did you change your mind over time? Like, did you feel like I did that now when you're looking back, you're like, actually, you know, they had a stronger case than I maybe thought, or did your feelings not change? Or what was your thought process like? Yeah, that's difficult to assess because um, I think one of the talking points that's been out there is that Russia didn't really bring this up until after the invasion had already happened and they yeah. were using it as kind of a, a ex post facto uh, justification for why they had invaded. Yeah. I mean, I think there is some truth to that. I don't, they didn't, and I, when I walk through the timeline, I can show some of the things they did say prior to the invasion. But yeah, if you read Putin's two speeches, you know, he gave one like a few days before the invasion and one like the day before, right after or something. You could, there are things you could decode in there where he's sort of alluding to biological weapons potentially, but this was absolutely not part of their stated case for invading Ukraine yeah. by any means. Mm -hmm. So I, I do sympathize with, with people who are skeptical of Russia for that reason. Um, on the other hand, I think everything they presented, um, yeah, it, I, I don't think they presented information which is false uh, from anything that I've seen. Arguably, um, they 
you could, if you were trying to be as skeptical of Russia as possible, um, you could say that they are drawing conclusions from things that aren't completely supported by the evidence. Like, they have not released a smoking gun. U.S. is definitely creating biological weapons in Ukraine in these labs. I mean, that smoking gun has not been released as far as I've seen. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I do think what they've been saying about it, what Putin's been saying about it, what the Ministry of Defense has been saying, what they've said in these UN meetings they've called, um, the specific information they've released, I don't think the U.S. has even tried to dispute that what they've released is accurate, that they've manipulated documents or anything like that. So, um, yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I already had a, <laughs> a bias in terms of the sense that I've, you know, been reading about this for a few years now, and I do think that the U.S. is running some kind of covert biological weapons program. Just on that note, like the idea that Russia came out and said they are making biological weapons there, that's a very strong and specific accusation. Yeah. Would you say it's more accurate to just say it this way, based on what we know now, that these labs store and possibly even study biological weapons. They may not be making them, but they are storing them. They've admitted that they're studying them, but they also work regularly with deadly pathogens, whether those can be considered biological weapons or not, I guess is up for debate. But all those things I just said, would you agree that that's an accurate way to depict it? Yes, I would agree with that 100%. Okay, so sorry, continue with your, with your thread. Well, I think that was mostly what I was going to say. So I can go through the timeline as I know it of kind of what Russia said and how the story's developed. Start first before you go into the actual timeline that you put together of when you first were sort of alerted to this um, becoming a subject recently, like uh, this. Biological weapons or Ukraine specifically? U Ukraine specifically. I think I'll just say for myself, the first thing I saw about it was probably that Atomic Bulletin of Scientists journal that had the U.S. official, I think it was Robert Pope, mm -hmm. bringing it up. And I think it was from a posting I saw you post about. So yeah. what was the first thing you saw about this? And, and then take us back to the timeline, because I think people don't understand. Yeah, Russia did not only say this after the invasion. I mean, you've, you've conclusively proved that that's not when they started talking about it. So... So yeah, so yeah, go back to that. So as far as my, yeah, knowing about the Ukrainian labs, I mean, I had first encountered that idea in an article by Dilyana Gaitanjeva, who's written about this a lot. And she wrote an article in 2018. I don't know that I necessarily saw it then. I might have seen it later. And she even has sort of a map of these different biolabs um, that the U.S. had um on the State Department's website, which they've since taken down, these fact sheets showing the that Ditro was involved with these 11 different labs in Ukraine. As far as in the context of this war, when I first saw it, it was actually that this random Twitter account called War Clandestine, which um, if you look up the kind of debunker articles on this, they'll they'll point out and it seems to be correct that this was kind of a QAnon adjacent account and had posted stuff that's kind of goofy or whatever. They had done a thread that was like, 
trying to make this case that Russia was specifically targeting Ukrainian biolabs. Yeah. And they did that very poorly. I mean, it was basically just a zoomed out map of Ukraine, the map that Dilyana Gaitanjeva had made mm-hmm. like three years ago with the 11 labs. And then some map somebody somewhere online had made of like the major places Russia was supposedly bombing. Yes. And if you put them together, they were kind of in the same location. I mean, it had a sealed indictments. It reminded me of the sealed indictments QAnon thing. Like, well, this number of or sealed indictments must mean that all these Hillary officials are going to be arrested. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely kind of a Putin is the white hat kind of mm-hmm. uh, tinge to the whole thing. And basically it's wrong and it doesn't even make any sense because I think there is a lot of danger if you bomb a bio lab. I, I mean, uh, I don't think Russia would want to bomb a lab and have the pathogens released. What they would want, what would make the most sense is to capture the bio lab and then release information about what was being kept inside. Exactly. Um, that would give them a you know propaganda advantage it would validate some of the things they've been saying about ukraine and the u.s and nato relationship um just firing a missile through a bio lab makes no sense unless they really thought that ukraine was going to release some pathogens and they were going to head it off at the pass but that you know seems very much just like a movie plot not like anything legitimate but w- one thing that was interesting about this thread is that this account got suspended for basically for this thread from what it looks like uh so that was kind of interesting because it it immediately put this put it in the context of like this is uh it gave it that mainstream debunker point of view you know kind of overlay to the whole story almost from the outset yeah, um, that like if you were going to talk about this, this is something that you're going to get banned for, you know, and that's um, that can be manipulated. And it doesn't mean that what the person is talking about is true. And like I said, I don't think they were right about what they were actually saying. Um, but uh, that does seem to be one of the first places where the bio labs came up as an issue. Um, and that is strange. I mean, that it was this random account that was bringing things up, um, you know, that, that is, it's suspicious. Yeah. I, I agree with that, you know, and the, the debunkers have seized on it as like, okay, well, all of this just traces back to this account and, uh, this narrative got like a lot of play online. And so Russia saw that it was popular. And so they started talking about it as part of their information war, uh, to win over the global right wing or whatever, because for some reason it plays well with the Tucker Carlson crowd or whatever. And I mean, I don't think that is really very accurate. And I think the timeline, which kind of shows that it's not so simple to frame it as to, in that way. I think that is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, it's a very strange overreaction. I mean, when you look, when you search for this topic on on Google, pretty much all you see are debunker articles that are, I think, very, you know, clearly creating a straw man on purpose to avoid discussing what's actually going on at these labs. And part of their, what they're up against, I think some of these journalists trying to debunk it, the challenge they're up against um, is that 
a lot of their own newspapers or outlets have reported on these labs as being potentially places where the U.S. government is making biological weapons not more than, you know, seven, eight years ago. You can find stories on Salon. You can find stories, I think, even on The Guardian itself, which is running some debunking stories now that actually fully acknowledge that some of these labs can be making biological weapons. This wasn't a subject that people were shying away from that long ago. People were willing to admit in the journalistic class that the biological weapons program could possibly still be continuing just under the guise of biodefense. All of a sudden now, it's like, no, that's not happening. Um, you know, there's no way that that's happening. I can't believe that the U.S. would be doing something like this. It does seem so brazen and so in your face that it makes perfect sense to me why Russia would not only use this as a you know piece of propaganda now against the United States, but like be actually legitimately concerned about this. I, I think it's completely understandable, and that's what's so funny to me about this. Like, how could you? How could you possibly not see that? Anyways, I mean, that's just me being frustrated, but you're right about the fact that this has sort of gotten propelled into the realm of like a certain sector of like right-wing conspiracy media, and it's mm -hmm. making it very easy for people to make it all about the messenger. I mean, and I think this got basically to like a, a critical mass state when Marjorie Taylor Greene brought it to the House floor. And she actually wanted to, to start a bill about it. Now, I'm not even calling that a broken clock is right twice a day thing because I don't, you know, even Tulsi Gabbard's thread about it seemed like she was saying that we need to protect these labs. Some, some entity needs to come in and do something. And she included NATO as one of the entities that should be included in that group of people to come in and do something. And I was like, I don't, you know, I just don't trust anything. <laughs> I mean, maybe she's bringing up some important information about it, but her... What her framing around it is strange to me. Um, it raises some red flags. Tucker Carlson talking about it. You know, I honestly, I'll just admit, I was probably at my most open state that I've ever been towards a, a Tucker segment when I heard that he was talking about this. I was trying to give it as fair as a shot as possible. And I guess I was a little dismayed. I wasn't even like, oh, this is a limited hangout. He's doing the, you know, the suspicious thing again. It was more like, He's not really, I don't feel like he's using the resources of his show to actually uncover certain things that would be really easy to just show the viewers that these are real, this is a legitimate concern. Instead, it was more just like, people thought this was a conspiracy theory until Victoria Newland admitted it, and now it's not a conspiracy theory. And It sort mm -hmm. of took that whole tone to it, and there just wasn't very much meat, I thought, to sink my teeth into with the content that was coming out. And it frustrated me. And I st and it's not just that the right-wing media is dominating this. It's like they're not really digging any deeper into it. And I think that that's kind of the norm. It's like this, you know, they'll become like a hot talking point for a second, but it won't really get any deeper. And, you know, it actually seems like Russia is actually trying to deepen the discussion more so than some of like the, you know, the right-wing media players that are spreading it right now. I mean, they just released a new cache of documents that were very specific, saying that, you know, Putin, I think you even mentioned that he said uh, that, you know, there were messing around with um, coronaviruses, like in 2019, sort of winking that, you know, maybe the U.S. had something to do with COVID. But then China jumps into the discussion 
you know, and you've established, I'm going to have you go into this timeline, but them coming in strong and also joining Russia in these accusations created a rift or a split within the right wing where there's actually a lot of people are saying this is Chinese propaganda now among, you know, even some people on Fox News, but yet the Tucker side is actually sort of going along with it. Even apparently, according to you, China was already on this too before, and it wasn't just suddenly. So take us back to the timeline of when this uh, really started and how I think you've been able to prove that this wasn't just something that was brought up post-invasion, even if the Russians are trying to use it as sort of a post-invasion excuse. They've been talking about this for a while, so go, go into that. Yeah, I mean, the earliest statement I've seen from kind of Russian officials actually goes all the way back to July 2013. And there, the uh, Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, they were actually responding to the U.S. um, I think the U.S. released a statement saying itself was not compliant with the uh, Biological Weapons Convention or something strange. I'm not totally sure what the the context of it was oh no sorry sorry i I'm, i misspoke there i meant to say that um the state department had released i guess they do some annual assessment or whatever i don't know what they base it on or they used to and they said that russia is non-compliant with the biological weapons convention i'm not entirely sure what they were basing that on but as a response uh russia responded and said biological operations of the u.s department of defense near the russian borders are a source of various serious concern very serious concerns as well um so that's the earliest statement i've seen and there may be earlier ones than that even but uh that's before even the um maidan and before the real kind of um heat up of the new cold war uh to mix my metaphors with russia Um, really kicks off as far as and so then i'm gonna jump to 2022 and the more recent stuff but in between what you saw is that there was russia had made statements about it but i think you see more is that they were almost certainly using journalists to get information about um what was going on with the u.s's biological weapons or biodefense quote-unquote program um, out there. And um, I mentioned her before, but there's this Bulgarian journalist, Ilyana Gaitanjeva, um, who's written about this a lot going back to at least 2018. Um, she has a big article called The Pentagon's Biolabs. Um, she's the first person to really talk about um, the Ukrainian biolabs. This is back in 2018. Um, she had talked about the Luger Center in Georgia and um, the experiments that they were doing there. And she filmed a documentary and went there and filmed people who lived near the lab and people who've gotten sick and mysterious gases being released from the lab and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't want to impugn her because I've used her um, research a lot and I do think she does really good work. I, I mean, I think there's a, a fairly good chance that some of the information she has gotten has come from Russia, um, that they pass her along things and then she reports on them. Uh, so I think that, and this is apparently how the Soviets worked and how the U.S. would work as well. There were rarely allegations directly uh, throughout the Cold War of biological weapons being um, uh, developed in contravention of the the convention. They would 
put things in these small newspapers, kind of trying to get it out there, like we know what we're on to you kind of thing. I, I, I think is it, it's sort of a, it's the information war aspect of this whole thing. So anyway, that was kind of a side note, but I, that I think mostly is what Russia was focused on as far as this issue goes um, up until, you know, more recently. So the next thing that really happens in 2022 is that um, on February 4th, um, this is while the um, Olympics were going on, Russia and China actually released a joint statement. And in that statement, uh, they have a fairly lengthy, a like, couple paragraph section on biological weapons and uh, making the allegation that the U.S. is, is basically developing them. And they call for um, strengthening the Biological Weapons Convention, uh, for adopting a legally binding protocol um, with effective verification mechanism, the issue we talked about earlier. Um, and they um, they even say outright, the sides emphasize that domestic and foreign bioweapons activities by the United States and its allies raise serious concerns and questions for the international community regarding their compliance with the BWC. The sides call on the U.S. and its allies to act in an open, transparent, and responsible manner by properly reporting on their military biological activities conducted overseas and on their national territory, and by supporting the resumption of negotiations on a legally binding BWC protocol with an effective verification mechanism. Wow. So that's February 4th. That's well before the, um, obviously, the invasion happens. And it's a very specific statement. It doesn't mention Ukraine, but it doesn't really mention any country specifically. Um, and it's pretty directly targeted at the U.S. and at the core issue, as I see it, which is, or the core issue from a kind of international um, perspective of, you know, a community of nations kind of idea, that you have a BWC with no verification mechanism at all. And the U.S. is the one who has stood in the way of that. Now, a few, uh, not quite two weeks later, Antony Blinken, and you have to remember this was all in the context of like um, the media portraying it like Russia is going to invade any day now. You know, so there was this kind of weird war fever and a lot of us, you know, myself included, didn't really buy it. And of course, that turned out to be incorrect when Russia invaded. Um, But You know, this is the kind of atmosphere that these statements are being made in. Um, February 17th, um, Antony Blinken makes a statement at the UN Security Council and directly accuses them that they're going to do a false flag attack, basically, saying they plan to manufacture a pretext for its attack. This could be a violent event that Russia will blame on Ukraine or an outrageous accusation that Russia will level against the Ukrainian government and says they don't know what form it will take. It might be a terrorist bombing, uh, it might be a staged drone strike against civilians, or a fake or even a real attack using chemical weapons. Um, so he doesn't say hmm. biological weapons, um, and you know chemical weapons are different, um, but it, it um, he, and, and this got picked up a lot and was one of the things that seemed most ludicrous. They were basically saying that um, Russia was gonna very possibly gas its own citizens and blame it on the U.S., which, of course, is, you know, the allegation that was made many times over against um, 
uh, the Syrian rebels in, in Syria that, you know, they were committing these false flag attacks. And, um, of course, that was, you know, like uh, the most insane thing you could say from the mainstream perspective. Uh, and now you have <laughs> basically uh, Antony Blinken out there saying it at the UN. So, you know, this was reaching a pretty crazy stage at this point. Now, Putin before the invasion gives two speeches well he gives one speech like three days before and most and that's the speech people may remember he talks a lot about the history of ukraine and how ukrainians are russians russia's brothers and they're not really two nations and he gets into some of the history of the soviet union and it really actually has a pretty anti-soviet kind of perspective on it Mm -hmm. um and you know it's a pretty long speech he says a lot of different things in there one of the things he talks about is um, he starts talking about tactical nuclear weapons and basically implies that Ukraine is going to obtain uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And then after that, he says, if Ukraine acquires weapons of mass destruction, the situation in the world and in U- Europe will be will drastically change, especially for us, for Russia. Um, and then says, basically, you know, we need to react to the threat of of uh, weapons of mass destruction and arms being pumped into Ukraine. Now, weapons of mass destruction is, of course, a um, a term that includes nuclear weapons, which is what he had just been talking about, but is broader and includes biological and chemical weapons. So it is possible to read that, and you know, probably you'd have to parse the original Russian to know if there's if if this really was in the tone of what he was saying. Um, but it is possible to read that as a a kind of veiled um, reference to the idea that Ukraine was, um, you know, could be obtaining biological weapons through these labs or through some other means, you know. Absolutely, um, yeah. Yeah. And then on February 24th, he gives a shorter speech, and this is really the kind of uh, wartime, you know, this is the day they invade. And he... Um, he doesn't, you know, he talked somewhat about arms going into Ukraine, as I recall. Uh, but what he says is um, fully controlled from the outside. Ukraine is doing everything to attract NATO armed forces and, quote, obtain cutting edge weapons. Now, I don't know where the phrase cutting edge comes from exactly. I don't know what that is supposedly referring to. Um, but, you know, it, there's a possibility that that is referring to biological weapons. If you it, we're putting the most kind of generous spin on it, um, I, so I don't know if that really had anything to do with that or not. Um, on the same day of the invasion, that's when this war clandestine thread um, goes up, and it does get a lot of attention. I think it was passed around not just on Twitter but on other sites. Um, you know, some of the chans and maybe Telegram and uh, maybe Gab, I think, is actually where some of the talking points or ideas had originated. And so that it, it so from the first day of the war, it was kind of out there in the ether, at least unconnected to Russia. The next day, the Bulletin for the Atomic Scientists um, releases a an article um that basically it's mostly based around an interview with Robert Pope, who's the head of the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. And it's really all based around this idea that um, Russia might fire a missile through these biolabs they have in Ukraine, 
and that could be really bad because it could release pathogens and it's really dangerous. And if you read Pope's statements in there, it's it's pretty fascinating because he really seems to be walking a line between raising the alarm about this, which for some reason they seem to want out there in the media. They wanted the idea that the labs are a, a dangerous target. Mm-hmm. And they also want this idea out there that Russia is going to use this for a propaganda for propaganda purposes. Yeah, and he starts. He even talks about how they they may seize one of these labs and release uh, fabricated uh, quote unquote disinformation about um, you know what was in these labs and what they were used for. And he urges the labs to uh, purge their stockpiles uh, to um, get rid of their. Uh, deadly pathogens, and he also kind of tries to distance the U.S. from the Ukrainian labs in the sense that um, he makes this point that the U.S. had been pushing Ukraine to consolidate their labs for years and um, combine, you know, they have too many pathogens in too many different places. That's the sort of phrase he uses. And, um, um you know, so he's trying to say that basically we had tried to get them to get rid of some of this dangerous stuff and they didn't do it. And he also specifically says that they very likely still have pathogens left over from the Soviet times, you know, when the yeah. Soviets were supposedly running a biological weapons program. He's leaving pretty much every potential door open for if there are biological weapons there and if Russia finds them then this is the reason. It's totally benign. Exactly. I mean, it's like a... Right. It's a ridiculous amount of stuff to put out there preemptively, too. And so you have to wonder, who is he... Is he messaging to other people in the government or who might work in this project? It is weird to be like, yeah, I think they should destroy this stuff. We don't know of any order that's gone down specifically, although the Russians are claiming they've found a document. And I, and I, you know, I don't know 100% if it's their depiction of it is accurate saying that there is a document they found that they basically got orders to destroy some of their materials. I I guess either before the invasion or after it happened. Mm -hmm. And there was one interesting thing I found just going back to that visual picture that you put painted of Obama walking up to that fridge with the bike lock and how insecure that whole situation was Uh, Luger himself and his little news report is basically and he's repeatedly said this in editorials too. He actually wrote an editorial with Obama back in 2005 about like avian flu or something. But he's he's repeatedly talked about how we can't trust these labs. So like even while we're cooperating with them and and doing this CTR program in 2005, he's actively saying that we cannot trust their practices. Not even just saying that they're not secure enough, also sort of implying that they're just not trustworthy in general. We don't know yet, almost like they could be still working for Russia or or there's the implication there that there's still not like this joint cooperation that we can fully trust about the situation. And I'm just wondering if that's if that's still going on or if they, I mean, have you seen anything like that in any of the timeline you put together where there's anybody like Robert Pope has asserted that still? Even just saying that they're unsafe or not secure enough now, like in this current time frame. You know, I think there is a way of reading what Robert Pope was saying about it um, that that is kind of what he's saying. Um, it is a fact that, I mean, most of these biolabs are not like BSL-3 level. So if they did have pathogens at places that aren't 
at least a BSL-3, I mean, that is a pretty dangerous situation, I think, if you ever try to work with them. Um, I don't know that anyone said that outright. The talking point was more like a missile might fly through a lab and release you know, yeah. this pathogen out into the ether. That That seemed to be the major thing. And then also that these labs were vulnerable to Russian disinformation, you know, which is a, a funny thing to say before Russia really has come out uh, directly and, and started saying that um, that is what these labs are doing. So just going back to your timeline, it seems like there's been almost the domination of the media landscape here has been all about debunking this Russian disinformation talking to point sandwiched in between two official blatant admissions of what we're saying, what we've been saying during this podcast. And that started with, it seems like it started with Robert Pope, which you've just explained. And that was sandwiched, you know, with all this talk about, we need to debunk this Russian talking point. It's not true. Book ended with the Victoria Newland admission and that interchange with Marco Rubio. Do, mm -hmm. Is there anything else in your timeline that's in between that about what Russia said uh, before we get to that Victoria Newland admission, which seems to have actually changed a lot of people's minds overnight, who were very skeptical of this. So what happened leading up to that? Didn't Russia officially come out and wasn't that there when they came out very strongly, though, and said we have documents now? The day before Russia and then China right after that came um, came out and said the, the thing about the made sort of direct accusations about the biolabs. So then... How do you feel like that hearing where she was questioned, how do you think that changed the calculus of this? And what do you make of what she did say? Why didn't she just say no when Marco Rubio asked her? Was she, did she feel her, that she had to tell the truth in that moment? Or could she have actually been trying to light a match on purpose? Like, I'm a little bit confused on why she said that. I don't know. What was your take on that? And did you see people's mindset being shifted after that? that admission i don't know the whole thing is very bizarre because he's basically throwing the question out there just for her to knock it down and say this is ridiculous of course we don't have a biological weapons program of course there's no biological weapons in ukraine well um i only have a minute left let me ask you um does ukraine have chemical or biological weapons uh Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities, which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. I'm sure you're aware that the Russian propaganda groups are already putting out there all kinds of information about how they've uncovered a plot by the Ukrainians to release biological weapons in the country and with NATO's coordination. If there's a biological or chemical weapon incident or, uh, or attack inside of Ukraine, is there any doubt in your mind that 100% it would be the Russians that would be behind it? There is no doubt in my mind, Senator, and it is classic Russian uh, technique to blame on the other guy what they're planning to do themselves. She says more or less what Robert Pope had said um, something like two weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. 
which is basically that, um, yeah, we do have biolabs there. Um, there are research facilities. Um, you know, we don't know what Russia might do if they were to get control of them. And uh, we're working with the Ukrainians, you know, and she's, you can watch the clip of it. It's gone around many times, but I mean, she looks very awkward. She looks very uncomfortable. She doesn't seem to be like, it doesn't look like something she had prepared for, weirdly, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though it seems like something that would obvious, you know, it, it seemed pretty likely that it could come up. Um, and so it, it doesn't seem like she quite knew how to respond. So she acknowledged, but she does seem knowledgeable about it too, to the extent that she knows there are biolabs over there. And um, she wants to make this point that the real danger of them is that if Russia gets a hold of them, they could either do something with them or use them for kind of a, a disinformation propaganda type purpose. And then when she acknowledges that, Marco Rubio kind of like tries to intervene <laughs> basically to like save the narrative there. Yeah. And um, it's like, well, you know, if, if there's a biological weapons attack, of course that's Russia, right? Ru Russia would be the only one who could do it, right? And she says, oh well, yeah, of course, you know, it's it definitely it's Russia if, there, if anything happens over there. So uh, it is very hard to parse to me why she acknowledged it and why she looked so uncomfortable talking about it when she did already seem to know what was going on there. Yeah, very, very strange. I still don't know what to make of it you know being who she is and because she's on russia's radar as being like someone that they hate uh that they leaked that phone call of in the original mm -hmm. ukraine coup it's i have to i gotta put my tinfoil hat on and say like she might have done it on purpose because she knew that it would escalate things in a certain regard and i i don't know why um what purpose that would serve other than I just know that the Kagan family has been seeming to want to go to war with Russia for a very long time. Let's get maybe more into the specifics of what biological weapons or pathogens that these labs have and what Russia said that they had and seems to be completely legitimate. There are claims about what the you know these labs are actually working with. Um, the documents seem completely legitimate to me. Uh, but what what have you found of, as far as like the pathogens that Russia said that they have and that we've that you've also found additionally that you know maybe Russia hasn't mentioned that we know that they're working with or that they store yeah so they've kind of dribbled it out in a few different places I guess Putin gave a speech on March 16th where he was pretty specific about what he was alleging they had. And yeah. the examples he gave were um, coronavirus strains, which we had talked about earlier, anthrax, cholera, African swine fever, and other deadly diseases. African swine fever is an interesting one. One, because there have been several outbreaks of African swine fever in Ukraine yeah. um, over the past uh, several years. And some they had to kill like uh, 100,000 hogs on during one of these outbreaks which is like 1% of their um of their total livestock amount. Um African swine fever is also interesting to me because it is 
pretty well established that the U.S. used it against Cuba in 1971. And um, Covert Action Magazine followed up on this uh, fairly recently and found some new information that kind of bolsters this. But there had been accusations even back at the time because uh, there was this incident where African swine fever of a type that had never been in Cuba before um, creates a huge outbreak and Cuba had to kill 500,000 of their uh, swine livestock. Uh, so a really massive, you know, hit to their, um, you know, protein production and all this stuff. And um, it uh, most likely originated from Plum Island. You know, I don't have all the details right here, but you can look up the article uh, that Covert Action Magazine has and they have some information about it. Um, the other thing I had found is that there wasn't like an, a visit by some of the Ukrainian biolab people, the people who run the biolabs in Ukraine, the Ukrainian officials, and they had visited Texas A&M back in 2011. And specifically, one of the people um, was in charge with African, uh, was uh, head of an African swine fever lab. And when they came to the U.S., they went to uh, Texas A&M, met with the guy who had discovered the original Ames strain of anthrax and provided it to the U.S. military, as well as this woman who had worked at Plum Island, which, like I said, was the origin of this uh, 1971 attack. So anyway, uh, African swine fever uh, kind of just rings a bell for me as far as um, the accusations go. Um the couple days after Putin had made had said those, um, the uh, Russia came out and released some documents. So this was just a few days ago on the 18th. This is when they released a cache of documents of um, some operations contracts that were going on uh, in the biolabs in Ukraine. And they mentioned specifically Crimean Congo fever, leptospirosis, Um, and other dangerous pathogens. And the argument they make specifically is that these are naturally occurring in Ukraine and that the U.S. was studying them. And this is an interesting kind of angle, I think, that I hadn't quite seen phrased this way before, that the reason they're studying Crimean Congo fever and leptospirosis, and I think hantavirus is another one that had been mentioned as well, is that they are naturally occurring in Ukraine. And so then that provides perfect cover to uh, create a bioweapons version of that virus there in Ukraine, because it's hard to question why they're studying the virus when there are outbreaks of it. Um, But that also in itself provides the justification uh, that can cover over an actual weapons program. So that's really what the argument that uh, Russia is making most recently with respect to these. Just based on my own research, that's a completely valid and very accurate argument to make. And even the pathogens they are claiming that these labs are working with can be verified through looking at other public documents. They didn't even need to release, you know, if these are supposedly leaked from internal things that weren't supposed to get out, they didn't even really need to do that because I found. There's a public science paper on uh, one of the labs that's uh, covered under the Defense Threat Reduction Agency studying leptospirosis mm-hmm. that's been released publicly. You mentioned African swine flu. 
There is a program, a series of workshops that actually took place in Georgia under the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. They invited a bunch of people from these, some of these Ukrainian labs. And pretty much all the, the Ukrainian lab presenters are presenting presentations on studying African swine flu. And another one where they're, they're studying um, Crimean... Yeah, Crimean Congo uh, fever, yeah. hemorrhagic fever. So all these things can be independently verified through these not, you know, if you want to discount any of the things Russians are releasing, you can verify them independently with other publicly available documents. I mean, and there's a whole lot more in here too, and other ex-Soviet countries. I mean, like for example, in Kazakhstan, they're presenting something on Newcastle disease virus, uh, completing the genomic sequence of it. So it it gets really deep. I mean, it it just the rabbit hole is very very deep uh, mm-hmm. with all this stuff. What else is Russia saying? Because originally they were saying, you know, straight up there are biological weapons there. They did release something saying that anthrax was being stored at one of these labs. But I mean, what are your thoughts on uh, what you've seen with their accusations? And I guess just go a little more deeply into that. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of what they've released are contracts with the made through the embassy uh, in Kiev. And they one of the things they did is that they... Uh, kind of specifically named an individual who um, is supposedly kind of the point person for Defense Threat Reduction Agency in uh, Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And um, and again, this is stuff which, you know, is pretty easy to verify when, you know, if you have the name and just search around a little bit. So they named this woman Joanna Wintroll as being, like I said, working in the U.S. Embassy, but working for the Pentagon Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Her involvement, I actually found a medium, it was uh, the the U.S. Embassy in Kiev's medium page. I just, I literally just found that after okay. searching <laughs> yeah, her name yeah. in uh, Ukraine. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. Once you get her name, you, this is like, because there's not a whole lot out there with her name on it, but this pops up pretty quickly. And um, it's, you know, pretty interesting interview because she um, specifically denies, and this is back in 2020, that the labs are really U.S. run. You know, they have no U.S. scientists work there. And of course, it's just an agreement, joint program with the two nations. But at the same time, she also acknowledges um, that the U.S. uh, works very closely. She says, as you can see, so she names off the various different agencies they've worked with. And it's things like the Ministry of Health, and you might say, okay, well, that seems fine, or the State Service of Ukraine for Food Safety and Consumer Protection, National Academy of Agrarian Scientists all seem like they could be benign. But she also mentions Ministry of Defense, National Police, Secret <laughs> Security Service of Ukraine, and she says, as you can see from this long list, we work quite closely with Ukrainian authorities. And also in that interview, she... Um, goes into slight detail about one of the programs, which is that her team does uh, hands-on training for the National Police Security Service of Ukraine and the State Border Guard Service to strengthen our cooperation on the topic of quote-unquote dual-use items. These are items that have a legitimate purpose, but if they fall into the hands of a bad actor, they can be used to create a dangerous weapon. (laughs) So she's, you know, right there just admitting that the stuff they're holding in these labs are not you know, it's not purely benign. It's not like they've de 
uh, deactivated some kind of uh, virus and that's what they're working with. You know, these are things which can be used as um, as weapons. And then on Wintroll, just, you know, searched a little bit further. And what was kind of interesting is that she, before going to Ukraine, was involved in this program in Libya uh, to, and there seems hard to corroborate this actual part of it, that um, she secretly built a facility to destroy um, chemical weapons in, uh, in Libya right after the fall of Gaddafi. Uh, and they supposedly destroyed 500 uh, tons of um, chemical weapon, uh, chemical weapons precursors that were being held in Libya. Um, but if you look up other reporting on it, it doesn't actually ever mention that they built a elimination facility. What it says is that they took the chemical weapons precursors and sent them to Germany and destroyed them in Germany. This is so weird because here's an actual quote. She says, Throughout the time the facility was operational, 570 chemical weapon munitions were destroyed. She says, I was sitting at a kid's birthday party at a pizza restaurant right. when I received the email of the last munition being destroyed. So she's acting like the actual like chemical, like like literal already put into weapons are being destroyed. I will never forget that feeling of accomplishment in that moment, she says. Right. It doesn't sound like that's exactly what happened. <laughs> Well, it doesn't because the OPCW's own site says that they were sent to Munster, Germany, and they were destroyed at a facility there. And <laughs> one of the, like, you know, this is to expand the conspiratorial lens on this a bit. You know, if you were sending things out, so uh, this facility was supposedly in Wadden, Libya. Um, and Wadden, Libya is a desert oasis town. So obviously, if you were shipping them to another country, you wouldn't ship them directly from Wadden. Well, one of the closest ports and the closest actual really big international port is Benghazi. And if you remember, Seymour Hirsch had all these articles and one in particular from like 2013, 2014, where he was arguing that the Libyan embassy was being used to as a rat line for weapons going into Syria. Yeah. And included in that were sarin precursors, which were, um, you know, on the counter narrative were used by the the Syrian rebels uh, potentially in attacks that were ended up being blamed on the Assad government. Um, and so anyway, it, it seems very plausible to me <laughs> that in fact, she may have been called in at a later stage and they did destroy some things. But what was really happening is they were very possibly taking the Syrian precursors that existed in Libya, moving them to Benghazi, shipping them from Benghazi to southern Turkey and then moving them across the border from southern Turkey into Libya. This is putting together Hirsch's reporting with some of the other reporting on this uh, stuff in Libya. And, you know, that does not seem at all implausible to me. Um, and then that she was maybe called in on the back end to kind of um, break this up because the story is that ISIS was closing in on Wad in Libya and so they had to jump in and get rid of all the stockpiles that existed in the country. Otherwise, ISIS was basically going to get, you know, sarin precursors, I guess. Crazy. Yeah. So that's that's a pretty wild thing. And that the name of that individual um, was highlighted, I would say, by Russia specifically. I mean, they mentioned her in the uh, recent speech that they did to the UN um, and um 
you know, they, they were putting her on blast, I guess is what I'll, what I'll say. They were. Yeah. Well, they, they, they literally said, I think they challenged the press or anyone listening. If these documents are fake, then go ask Joanna Wintrell yes, exactly. to sign off on them. And I would say the documents are clearly not fake. Um, they, from based on what I've seen in the, the yeah. documents I pulled up independently, they're not fake. They're all, they all are legitimate. I can't vouch for the ones that are in Russian. Oh, the ones I've seen in English, they, they looked completely real to me. Yeah. And they're not like, you know, you don't read through it and it's like, oh yeah. yeah okay. Here's the agreement for $50 million for our weaponized uh, anthrax program or something. You know, I mean, it, there are still layers of deniability to everything that they've released. Um, but you know, what they are showing is that yeah, the, you know, there was money going in from, and they have specific project names and numbers assigned to them, UP8 and other things like that. And uh, yeah, I, I think it would be a pretty hard claim that these are completely false. Now, one other accusation they made, and this doesn't seem, you know, they don't have a document showing this or anything, is that in 2018, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis in Donetsk, which is one of the breakaway republics in Ukraine that's, you know, the center of this whole uh, conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And it killed about 70 people, and it was uh, supposedly a drug and vaccine resistant strain of tuberculosis that I guess hadn't been seen before. And uh, Kirilov, who, uh, forget his exact role, he's the Minister of Foreign Affairs or something, or maybe he's the uh, ambassador to the UN. Um, he had, uh, he said, you know, made the specific allegation that this very possibly uh, came out of one of these Ukrainian bio labs, either accidentally or deliberately leaked. Uh, so, you know, that that is um, one of the accusations they're making there as well. And in case people are still under any doubt whatsoever that this is a military run program even though there are civilians and non-military scientists working there i mean this is just an example this is the the defense threat reduction agency's acquisition forecast of money that they've given to private companies and some of the most money they've given has been to outright defense contractors siac 170 million dollars services to support biological threat reduction program mission with diagnostic equipment Let's see, Northrop Grumman, Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, $239 million. And if you look at this, it's all, most of it involves the um, biological threat reduction program, but yet all these outright military contractors are, in, are getting huge payouts from this agency. So I just, I find it very hard to believe that any leftist or anti-imperialist or any anti-war person would be able to continue to brush this off. Just because of the, I mean, and it seems like this, the sad part is it's like the spin is just so thin. The veneer of this is so thin. I just don't understand how it's working so well. I don't know if you want to comment on that, go ahead. Well, yeah, kind of on that. I mean, one of the more ridiculed claims that uh, Russia made was that, um, that they had evidence that the U.S. was weaponizing birds as delivery vices for um, bioweapons, essentially. And so they did kind of, you know, at least somewhat bolster that claim. They released a document relating to something called Project Flu Fly Way, um, which was a, I believe it was a, a co, 
co-production of the Kharkov Institute of Veterinary Medicine and the Luger Center in Georgia, which is a, you know, a very large lab. And they were um, studying birds as vectors for the transmission of a highly pathogenic form of avian influenza. Um, so, you know, again, you can, it, it's all dual use here. So you can see yeah. from one perspective how that could be perfectly legitimate. You would want to understand how birds transmit uh, viruses. On the other hand, you can totally see how birds could be used to spread bioweapons. And in fact, during the Korean War, um, a guy named Jeffrey Kay, um, who's great, he's done a lot of different research on Guantanamo and some stuff mm -hmm. on 9-11. And um, he's done a lot of really interesting stuff on the Korean War and the U.S.'s use of bioweapons during that war. And one of the things he showed pretty well is that the U.S. was experimenting a lot during that war with using animals as vectors uh, for bioweapons. So they would just drop like balloons or glass uh, jugs full of fleas or mosquitoes. Uh, they tried dropping uh, voles, which are kind of uh, rodent. Uh, I believe they dropped rats. Um, so they were, you know, that, this has been something they've been looking at for a long time, the idea that um, animals can be used to uh, basically spread a bioweapon. So it's not crazy. And like, and you know, this project flew fly way shows you the exact kind of way that this could be done through legitimate seeming research, right? Um, they're collecting up all of these strains of different kind of uh, bird flu with high epidemic potential. Um, they're, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if it goes as far as to say that they were actually infecting birds and flying them around. Um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem with the outside of the realm of possibility, especially when you look at like um, that project diffuse program, which was this um, eco health proposal. I mean, there were a lot of other agent, a lot of other parties involved too, but uh, eco health had submitted this proposal to DARPA to get funding for a program where they were going to aerosolize coronavirus and put it in a cave in bats and spread it around as a live vaccine. And yep. um, that's been picked up a lot by the lab leak people um, because it, it corroborates a lot of what they've been saying about what EcoHealth and the Wuhan lab were trying to do. Um, but one of the things that was always interesting to me about that is that the reason they did that grant proposal was that DARPA had specifically requested uh, proposals for grants that involved uh, taking a virus and making uh, some kind of aerosolized vaccine out of it. Um, yep. And so there were lots of other proposals and they're secret, so we can't see them. This one happened to be leaked, but I would very heavily suspect DARPA passed on this one. I would suspect they, they did fund something very similar. And um, Francis Boyle, who I've mentioned before, he's made the point that aerosolization is one of the absolute red flags that you're working with a um, biological weapon program um, because aerosolization, aerosolization is the primary method through which um, a vaccine, or I mean, sorry, through which um, bioweapons have been worked on to be delivered. Um, at least up in, I mean, the, he made that point s several years ago. I don't know, maybe they've developed even new crazier ways that it could work, but uh, certainly aerosolization just intuitively makes sense that, that if you wanted to spread a bioweapon around, that's kind of how you would do it. You would make it where 
it you breathe it in and you know it harms you yeah i mean every, a lot of people probably remember batman begins the Raja ghoul spoilers yes, right. <laughs> the plot of aerosolizing the water supply in gotham after filling it with the scarecrow hallucinogenic right. uh, gas or drug or whatever for people out there who are listening who are like oh i, I thought Fr- francis boyle you know he seems like he's kind of a kook or whatever like a lot of people yeah. have have sort of written him off now thinking that he's gotten too embroiled in sort of this lab leak narrative or that he's put out wrong information. I, I still think he's very credible, but a lot of people have a reaction against when they hear his name now, but just in case you do, if you're a listener out there who is having that kind of reaction, uh, there's another guy named Jonathan Tucker who does not have that same reputation who you've done a little reading about Gumby who explains very clearly in one of his books the very dangerous dual-use potential of a, this so-called aerosolized vaccine production. Um, and he lays it out, and he ranks them in his book of how, like, what the potential is for dual-use. And that's, he ranks that one on the higher end of the scale of, like, the potential for a very dangerous use, you know, if if the intent was was in a certain way. So that's not something that Francis Boyle alone thinks. Um, it's something that is should be very obvious just on its face. Yeah. Like, you're kind of pushing, you're stretching the limits of, like, noble intentions there, I think, when you're trying to push this idea of an aerosolized vaccine, because that almost implies, too, that it would be, like, involuntary. Like, why, why would they use an aerosolized vaccine to, like, help eradicate a disease i mean people have a choice like are they thinking of using it on a human population if there's like pandemic because that sounds like you're removing people's agency there <laughs> you know uh, yeah gonna... I'm afraid. so the whole thing just is nested weirdly to begin with yes absolutely i know there's definitely more you have to say about this but i just wanted to have a chance to just really quickly go through these simple talking points and hold them up to scrutiny really quickly. I've seen people saying there are no there are no labs above BSL-2 in any of these uh, Ukrainian labs that are working with the U.S. government. I already know there's a BSL-3 in Kazakhstan. I think the Luger Center is a BSL-3. I think you found evidence that that's wrong, that there is definitely a BSL-3, at least one in, in Ukraine, that's working under the umbrella of the Biological Threat Reduction Agency. Which lab is that? Yeah, there's at least one, and I think there's probably two. Uh, the Ukrainian II Mechnikov Anti-Plague Research Institute in Odessa was upgraded to a BSL-3 uh, by DTRA, working under contract with Black and Veatch in 2011. And Black and Veatch has a site about where they they actually don't name the lab, but you can very clearly tell that it is this lab by uh, through some other sources. Um, and that one was designed for work with uh, pathogens that can be, quote unquote, introduced through a bioterrorism attack. That's according to according to Black and Veatch. Uh, they also seem to have another one which may not have the technical international certification of BSL-3, but does seem to work with the most um, dangerous pathogens. The Anti-Plague Institute is run by the Ministry of Health. And then there's another one um, that belongs to the Central Sanitary Epidemiological Station of the Ministry of Health of Ukraine. Uh, that one, I'm not entirely sure where that's located, but there's a um, 
a uh, kind of chapter in a book that's all about nonproliferation from 2011 called Biosecurity Challenges of the Global Expansion of High Containment Biological Laboratories. And there's a chapter on Ukraine where they talk about uh, this lab as being BSL-3 equipped, essentially. So there are at least one, and I think probably two, operating there. So people saying, you know, and there, there's sort of this framing too that you see sometimes where people are saying, well, just because it's a, you know, just because something's a BSL-4 or BSL-3 lab doesn't mean there's anything nefarious going on there. You know, tons of, as you said, universities around the country now have BSL-3 labs. But I think that that sort of, it's limiting the scope of the discussion to such an extent where it's like, well, there's other context there that's really important. Yeah, if these were just, let's say they were just, you know, people from the U.S. government were having some kind of cooperative projects with BSL-3 labs in Ukraine. If you just heard that on its own, it may be, it wouldn't sound that bad or like that problematic but it's like what we've been talking about, that this is basically a Defense Department project. It has a huge relationship with the military industrial complex, all the same companies that make weapons. I don't know what's your response to that and how just something being a BSL-3 lab on its own is not necessarily an indication that it's making bioweapons. But And then on the other hand, people saying, well, you can't make bioweapons if it's not BSL-4. Like if it's only BSL-3, then it's like, you know, they can't really be weaponizing viruses or such and such. What are the actual differences between BSL-3 and BSL-4? And maybe shed a little light on how you could still make biological weapons in a BSL-3. Yeah, I mean, there are different um, different pathogens which are classified as something you can work in a BSL-3 versus a BSL-4. I mean, for example, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID and other SARS-like coronaviruses, are at that lower level. So they can be worked on at BSL-3s. And there were allegations, I don't really know how true they were, that um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was actually working on SARS-like coronaviruses in a BSL-2, which has apparently about as much safety protocol as like a dentist's office or something. This is kind of something Richard Ebright I know has said, and I don't know, I haven't checked that specific talking point out to know if that's really true. The point is BSL-3s can work with many of the most dangerous viruses for sure. And Ukraine, again, going back to this um, chapter in this book I, I, I was talking about, they seem to be saying there that Ukraine actually has a different classification system where they classify things as one, two, three, and four, and one is actually the highest risk as opposed to the BSL levels. And that uh, even these BSL-3s are able to work with viruses in that top level uh, pathogenic group. So I think there is a lack of clarity here, and I, I, there may be some way of divining this, but it's hard to know, that they may actually be able to even work with even higher level or the most um, uh, dangerous pathogens, even above what you would normally think of with a BSL-3. What bio things that could be used as biological weapons or really dangerous pathogens are typically known as being something you can only work at a, you're supposed to only use a BSL-4 for? Well, yeah. So like, B uh, yeah, sorry. I got distracted from that talking point oh, okay. uh, because of the, <laughs> the <laughs> SARS-CoV-2 thing. But um, 
Yeah, so BSL-3, I mean, that includes saying Anthrax, is, it can be worked on in BSL-3s, uh, Brucella, which causes brucellosis or whatever. Uh, that's a BSL-3 level. I think like tularemia, tuberculosis. Um, I think even plague is somehow a BSL-3 level one. Mm -hmm. um, the ones that BSL-4, uh, you know, I don't know them off, all off the top of my head. I want to say Ebola is a BSL-4 level. Um, Marburg, I think. Um, smallpox, maybe. Smallpox is probably in that, yeah. Um, but there are, I mean, you know, like I just said, things that everybody would be concerned about, <laughs> scared of. Um, most flu viruses, I think, are BSL-3. Um, so, you know, you can work with extremely dangerous things in a BSL-3, things that, you know, are quite weaponizable. I mean, anthrax is a very clear example. We've seen weaponized anthrax used in the anthrax attacks. And that is something that uh, could be worked on at a BSL-3. And there's a lot of U.S. government propaganda that's very defensive, that's already been out since like 2018, since Russia has been going after the Luger Center in Georgia. Their claim is that it's not military. They also say in these videos that, and some of these writings that they've put out, uh, it's all unclassified, that anybody can look this stuff up and see that it's benign. I mean, just that second claim specifically, I find that extremely hard to believe that all of their stuff would be unclassified and made public. I mean, if this is a Defense Department project, why would they ha leave it all unclassified? It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. That I, I think is just completely unbelievable, you know, because just the unclassified stuff that they have out there that I've seen, some of it seems very incriminating on its own. So I can't even imagine what some of their you know, more internal documents say. It's a weird thing to challenge people and, and make them, you know, look stuff up because I personally think that the direction anybody would tend to go in, if you're just, say, if you go into this unbiased, you start looking up documents, they all sort of bolster Russia's case in this. They they really do. Well, yeah, to that, to that point, you can look at the 2005 agreement between the DOD and Ukraine and there is a provision in there specifically saying things have to be kept classified and uh, that Ukraine cannot yeah. release uh, information without the U.S. Department of Defense's uh, okay on it. So, yeah, there, there's no question that um, a bunch of the stuff, you know, that we, and I think Russia even used this phrase, we haven't seen even the tip of the iceberg on what's going on there. I mean, I think that's, absolutely the case and that what we do see we are only seeing the you know just to the degree of things that they are willing to put into writing and there's a lot that is potentially going on there um you know that they either don't put into writing at all or put into writing and keep under you know very close lock and key and is there any um evidence at all out there right now or any confirmation that russia has seized broken into stolen documents physically from any of these labs in ukraine yet or is this or where you know like are the documents they're releasing are they just sort of you know saying that they've gotten these from sources or you know i don't that's a good question because they i, I believe they said like they uh, have obtained these documents as part of their operations in ukraine but it doesn't seem to be that they've 
are really saying they went into the labs and obtained them that way. So I don't really know what that means. I mean, it's possible if they got access to a the right computer or, you know, if they were put on a file or something and that was part of the operation. So I guess basically I don't know for sure um, where they're even claiming they got them. Um, but I don't think there's any evidence that they have the Russian military has actually seized any of these labs. And that begs the question, why hasn't there been more? I mean, I guess the media is addicted to like debunking these kinds of talking points these days, but you would think that somebody in the mainstream media would be like, well, wait a second, wouldn't this now be uh, like, we know now that this is pretty much a military target or it could be, um, maybe let's go talk to some of these people at these labs and ask them if they're worried. Are they going to evacuate? I mean, it seems almost kind of just like a mystery box right now. What's actually going on there? I mean, Victoria Newland openly admitted that we have a vested interest in protecting uh, what's happening there. So I don't know. That implies some kind of, you know, that there could be some kind of military calculus that could come out of this. And I'm just surprised more people aren't talking about that or trying to investigate that situation specifically because what are these labs just continuing work as normal after this has become like a global controversy and Russia has made, you know, put it at like center stage. It's, it's kind of odd. I mean, I think it's quite likely that they did go into the mode of destroying a bunch of pathogens. I mean, it, it seems like that's what uh, Robert Pope, cooperative threat reduction people were telling them. That's what the um, WHO um, came out and said that they instructed um because they have a hand in these labs as well elaborate on that a little bit more because i forgot i forgot to ask you about that what did what exactly did they say and when did they come out and say that how did this got found out uh this yeah public? They, yeah yeah they were in the media talking about it um let me see if i can find my notes on this so yeah on march 10th um reuters and what at the time was an exclusive um reported that the WHO said it advised Ukraine to destroy pathogens in health labs to prevent disease spread and um, to, quote-unquote, prevent any potential spills, and they referred to them as, quote-unquote, high-threat pathogens. Um, the WHO, however, would not say whether that had actually happened and also wouldn't say when they made that uh, directive to them. So that seems bizarre. I mean, I don't know why they think that they shouldn't say that, um, uh, but it it certainly um, you know is is indisputable that the WHO um, was uh, directing the Ukrainian biolabs to do this, and Russia released documents which it claimed were from the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, um, saying that they that the Ukrainian Ministry of Health had also instructed all of these biolabs to destroy. Um, some of their the pathogens that they have there, um, and that came out even earlier. I think around the sixth or something like that. Why do you think they publicly came out and said this? What do you think they're? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why there has been, you know, from at least two official sources, being Robert Pope and the WHO. Um, why they went out into the media and 
said this that the, that they were in, you know um, advising Ukraine to destroy a bunch of bunch of pathogens. I I don't know. I don't know if they think that by doing that uh, they could head off, or you know that it would be a way of heading off Russia from trying to do a false flag attack and claim it was the labs because then they would have been out there saying, well, they had already destroyed everything per our directive or something. I mean, that's a pretty convoluted type of explanation. Um, I just really don't know. I don't know if there was part of it is, is the WHO and CTR wanting to distance themselves from anything that might come out of the labs by saying, you know, we don't know exactly what they have, but we told them to get rid of anything dangerous because, uh, you know, uh, we don't want it to fall into Russia's hands. And then that would also, I guess, I guess maybe this could be it. They, it pre-provides an explanation for if Russia seizes one of these labs and somehow they can establish that this lab destroyed a bunch of stuff on February 24th, the day they invaded, um, it would the explanation for that would already be out there in terms of yeah. you know the WHO had said we should destroy these because we don't want the you know dastardly Russians to get get out yeah, yeah yeah no that's that would be a brilliant way to just sort of yeah destroy any evidence if if that were to happen um but let's let's end this episode of Media Roots Radio on the most recent I guess most public display uh that russia has put on about this subject and that was them actually organizing a 15 member u.n security council meeting the united nations security council is convening in new york this friday morning after a meeting was requested by russia moscow had asked for this meeting to take place to discuss quote u.s laboratories in ukraine it's not the first time that russia has alleged that the u.s is funding military biological activities in ukrainian labs u.s ambassador to the u.n Linda Thomas-Greenfield had this to say in response to the Russian accusations at the UN Security Council meeting. Last week, we heard from the Russian representative a tirade of bizarre conspiracy theories. This week, we're hearing a whole lot more where that came from, things that sound like they were forwarded to him on a chain email from some dark corner of the internet. And notice that she uses the word malarkey, but attributes it not to her own Irish grandfather, like John Kirby did, but to Biden himself. President Biden has a word for this kind of talk, malarkey. As I said one week ago, Ukraine does not have a biological weapons program. There are no Ukrainian biological weapons laboratories not near Russia's border, not anywhere. There are only public health facilities proudly, and I say proudly, supported and recognized by the U.S. government, the World Health Organization, and other governments and international institutions. It is Russia that has long maintained a biological weapons program in violation of international law. It is Russia that has a well-documented history of using chemical weapons. It is Russia who is the aggressor here. The UN representative from China 
Xi'an Zian responded with, The international community has long had serious concerns over the United States' biological military activities. The U.S. controls 336 biological laboratories across the globe. This is the figure submitted by the U.S. to the Convention on the Prohibition of Biological Weapons. The U.S. has contended to be open and transparent. If it regards the relevant information as false, it can provide evidence for clarification, so as to facilitate judgment from the international community. Russia has actually called two different meetings uh, kind of on the same topic. The first one was, I guess, generally about the biolabs and uh, the various member states uh, commented on them. And um, Sam Husseini did a good thread of running down uh, what each party had said. And, you know, it basically just breaks down along geopolitical lines. Uh, you know, the U.S. says this is ridiculous and it's a conspiracy. Russia says, uh, you know, we know we think there are bioweapons programs going on here. A lot of states have somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, Brazil had a, a pretty reasonable statement where they um, didn't necessarily give full credence to the Russian allegations, but said we do really need a bi you know a, an actual verification mechanism for the Biological Weapons Convention. Uh, China more or less backed up Russia, and then um, on fairly recently on the 18th is when Russia um, convened another one of these meetings and released a lot of these documents that we've been talking about. Um, the contracts, you know, naming the DITRA official in the embassy, um, talking about this tuberculosis outbreak and uh, these various projects um, that we, you know, all, that we went into earlier. Um, as to whether this has turned things, it's hard to say. I mean, I, th I think it, um, I, I think a lot of people have basically just made their minds up to one extent or another and are not all that persuadable unless there's some kind of real smoking gun. And I don't think Russia has provided a true smoking gun, you know. Uh, that's yeah. the nature of dual-use research. It's very hard to get a smoking gun. Um, but, I mean, I think they've released information that corroborates, you know, some of the allegations they've made. Um, they seem to be making signals that there is more to come and so there may be a strategic kind of diplomatic strategy to this whole thing where uh kind of like we're going to keep releasing stuff until the u.s puts pressure on ukraine to make some kind of agreement um you know i think there could be a strategy like that involved in this whole thing um but it's hard to say. I mean, if they seize one of these labs and actually start to release stuff from inside of uh, inside of them, I think that will be a big step. Um, right now, the U.S. is is basically calling these conspiracy theories. You know, they're saying it's all stuff that like sounds like it originated from some dark corner of the internet. Um, as we talked about, all the debunking tries to. Um, tie this what russia is saying into QAnon, you know through this yeah. thread that got so popular and i think that may have been a, a useful function of that thread having been one of the first things to you know raise the issue for a lot of 
um, people, to, you know, just general people out there. Um, but as far as people are uh, being persuaded or not, I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is if if people make their way to actually looking up some of the things the United States has done with chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear weapons, and really thinking about the history of that and questioning why they think the U.S. would have stopped doing that, especially when they have fought so hard for so long to uh, prevent any kind of verification mechanism being created for the Biological Weapons Convention. You know, I don't know how you look at that full context and say, yes, what the U.S. is doing with pathogens is completely above board. It it just doesn't wash for me. I wholeheartedly agree. And I mean, I don't know if these Russian leaks or documents that they're presenting or presentations are going to change the calculus of the situation. But I think it's pretty clear to me that if you just look at their own writings published by this agency, the documents that they've made available, they're still available uh, on U.S. government websites. Uh, It's pretty obvious on its face that Russians and other countries should be concerned about this kind of activity, but Russia specifically because it's right up against their own border. Yeah. Also, this idea that they are working with, they claim, as the U.S. agencies claim, Soviet biological weapons that they're storing. Apparently, I thought they were all about trying to destroy and decommission these weapons, but they're right. they're openly still storing things from a country that, that hasn't existed for 30 years. So, you know, why? And what are they storing? And I think that also gives Putin's Russia reason to be concerned also, because there's been long-time accusations that Russia under the post-Soviet Union has continued basically the Soviet Union's biological weapons program in secret. Let's say the U.S. government wants to do some kind of false flag on Russia. They have all these old Soviet bioweapons, according to them. You know, what could they do? How easy would it be for them to you know, release one of those old Soviet bioweapons, let's say, and then blame it, make it appear that it was released by Russia, the post-Soviet Union Russia? And I think Russia has reason to be concerned about that as well. So there's a lot of reason for concern, and especially, you know, just because of this doomsday weapon uh, idea of smallpox. I mean, that's what we were accusing the Soviet Union of developing a weaponized vaccine-resistant strain that would basically be a world-ending bioweapon, you know, kind of release. So I don't know. It is the the whole context for all this is very strange. I guess I just want people to try to be more open-minded about this who are skeptical about it still, who think that it's all BS, who think that it's just some kind of Russia pulling their own WMD hoax. I mean, really look into this and, you know, why should you take at face value the intent, the good intent of the U.S. military? It really all does come down to intent. That's never been changed, as you just said, Gumby. Uh, we have resisted any type of verification system, any type of addendum to the Biological Weapons Convention to make it harder to make biological weapons. And why would we do that? Yeah. I guess that's the best place to leave it. Sure. Um, but I'll I'll give you a chance to tell people where they can find you, the stuff you've done online, if you wanted to add anything, any final thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, one one final thought I, I wanted to add is that uh, I, I have seen that argument that this is, yeah, basically uh, Russia is playing Colin Powell and this is the new WMD justification like Iraq. I mean, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. They did not, because they didn't really make a big point of this prior to the invasion. Um, if they had, um, you know, I think there would be more validity to that, but this was not the stated reason that they went into Ukraine and it doesn't seem like that's really what they're arguing. It you know, it's all about denazification, demilitarization. Um, and I think to some extent those are potentially uh, phony explanations as well, you know, or they're, they're amplified beyond the real reasons that Russia might be interested in, in the operation it's doing in Ukraine. Um, and the other thing I, I want to say is that, um, you know, let's take for a moment, say the conspiracy theorists are right. Uh, about various things, you know, say that um, in Syria, you know, uh, it was U.S. supported rebels who really used sarin, you know, and there's some evidence for that. Uh, say that it was uh, the U.K. or MI6 that used Novichok against the Skripals and it was not the not Russia. Um, and, you know, even if you get really uh, big brained about it, say that the U.S. intentionally released uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I mean, that would be the most extreme of these, obviously. Um, from the Russian perspective, do they, you know, say those things are true, does Russia know them? And even if they're not true, does Russia suspect that those things are true? I mean, I think to a large extent, they probably do. And I'm talking about the government of Russia here, not just the, sure. the populace. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe not sars Kobe too, you know, that one's more tenuous for sure. But I mean, you know, some of the Chinese um, state media was releasing things suggesting it came from Fort Detrick and stuff like this, you know, so it's in the, the air over there at the very least. Um, certainly if the U, if, you know, if the UK was basically trying to frame Russia for by killing this, I mean, they didn't actually kill him, but <laughs> uh, attacking this, this random a former agent in Salisbury, um, you know, Russia would have to look at that and think, yeah, they're capable of quite a lot of pretty dastardly things. And they seem to be wanting to use banned weapons in a way that um, puts us on the back foot and makes us look like we're using them. And, you know, would they, how would, if those things are true and they know them to be true, how would they look at these labs that are right all along their border? I mean, they would have to look at them as being offensive and as uh, both the potential for a direct attack and the potential for a kind of false flag attack. And, and I think if you accept those things or if you, can understand that Russia might accept them, yeah. uh, then I think it's pretty easy to see why they would have an enormous uh, problem with uh, the the uh, labs that are out there. A hundred percent. And even if you don't agree that all those things you just said are true, I think you would have to be awfully stupid from the Russian government's <laughs> perspective to not at least 
keep them open as possibilities and right. keep multiple angles open of what the U.S. is actually doing here because the U.S. does some really fucked up, crazy things, and they mm -hmm. always have. Yeah. Um, so we just have to always keep that in mind. And I don't, I don't think Russia will find a smoking gun um, unless it's something that is so beyond the realm of reason that it, they'll be able to be like, yeah, there's, there's, this was had no purpose for any kind of public health or anything. Cause unfortunately all these other things can be spun as some kind of biodefense or pandemic prevention. So let's just see how this shapes out. And it's, it's very interesting. And I, I hope that they have way more documents that, that they blast out. Uh, cause yes. I just, I'm just hungry for these documents right now. And along with this podcast, we are going to be releasing a link to like a bunch more documents that pretty much just bolster everything we've been saying. And, you know, if anyone sees that uh, documents that we have and wants to add more or wants to contribute more, you know, we'll be happy to throw them into the, the mix. So, uh, tell people where they can follow your work and, and check out some of the breakdowns you've done. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I just post stuff to Twitter. My Twitter account is Gumby for Christ, uh, Gumby, the number four, uh, Christ. And I'm not Christian and it's just a stupid name, uh, that I came up with for no, for no very good reason. Uh, but you know, that is where I post stuff and, um, you know, try to do somewhat original research and digging and, um, try to keep sane, <laughs> which is not always easy when you post about these kinds of things, but, um, yeah, that's where people can find me. Well, thank you so much, Gumby. And, um, always a wonderful guest to have on the podcast. Yeah. Um, looking forward to more threads you pull from this, uh, this strange story. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. If you liked what you heard on today's Media Roots Radio, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. And for as little as $5 a month, you get access to our bonus episode that comes out every month that's only available to our subscribers. And we have a ton of exclusive content. We're doing a series on the smallpox bioterror hoax right now. And that's available to our subscribers. We just unlocked the first and last episode of that. It's a five-part miniseries. And we also have a ton of other premium content, like the Masonic History of the United States, all sorts of stuff. So take a look at our Patreon page. Also check out Gumby's stuff on Twitter. His research is always extremely illuminating. But thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, CTR partnered with Russia and other Soviet successor states to secure and eliminate Cold War weapons. Today, revisionist nuclear powers China and Russia challenge the free and open international order. Rogue regimes in North Korea and Iran 
are destabilizing regions through their aspirations to missile and WMD programs. And non-state actors threaten global security with increasingly sophisticated capabilities. CTR is addressing WMD proliferation threats at the nexus of dangerous materials and bad actors, intent on acquiring or using them. This mission includes working around the world to secure dangerous pathogens and strengthen systems providing early warning of outbreaks of devastating infectious diseases, whether naturally occurring or intentional. We play a key role in keeping the United States, troops and allies safe by working with partners to address threats from WMD close to the source. CTR executes its mission through a layered, integrated application of four core capabilities to nuclear, chemical, biological, and radiological threats. When possible, CTR eliminates WMD programs and related systems or materials. If materials cannot be eliminated, CTR secures, consolidates, and accounts for WMD-related material. When CTR is not able to work at the source, we build partner detection and interdiction capabilities. This prevents WMD trafficking and enhances deadly infectious disease early warning systems. To accomplish our mission, we team with U.S. partners like the Armed Services, National Guard Units, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Department of Energy, the State Department, labs and universities, leveraging critical expertise and innovations, and accomplishing more together than the sum of individual efforts.